This is Abby Martin. This is a disclaimer to say that psychedelic drugs do not universally work the same for everybody. They can cause psychosis at high enough doses, and they can be life-changing in ways that are not always intended or desired. Psychedelics should be used responsibly and with extreme caution. The squad, all except the drill sergeant, now drugged with LSD, again was ordered to fall in. Notice the volunteer who salutes several times. Five minutes later, his severe depression caused the medical officers to end his participation in the test. But in marching, the drug squad, although starting fairly well, gave a sluggish and ragged performance. After a few minutes, the men found it difficult to obey orders. And soon, the results were chaotic. There was much laughter as the group attempted to give expression to inner emotions. This elation was group supported, and an individual who was separated from the group would show severe disturbance. What day of the week? Wait a minute, wait a minute, don't okay. bug me. What the hell are you used to anyway? I feel like I'm going, going back so far, so many faces in the... Basically, the ruling clause, what day is it? I can't remember a thing, I can't remember. Come on, man, I don't want this stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's going on? I guess it's here. Edgewood Arsenal was responsible for testing 740 soldiers and 900 civilians with the hallucinogen LSD. My mind was just. I didn't have a mind. And I went back, started going back in time. The, the, wall, the walls and inside the building were like blowing curtains in the wind. And, and they would ask me questions and, you know, all the time, what, what do you see? Because I was dodging things and, and ducking. And I went on quite a trip. 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 Read the sign in the snow. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Bobby Martin. And this is Abby Martin. So Abby, one of our very first episodes, maybe the very first episode of Media Roots Radio that has been pulled pretty much off of every platform that it was once hosted on, uh, was about psychedelic drugs and our own personal psychedelic experiences. I gave a very amateur overview of like all different genres of psychedelic drugs and the reason it was pulled is because we use like a Beatles (laughs) clip of some kind I don't remember what song but here we are almost 11 years later very eager to do not just one episode (laughs) on psychedelics but a whole series of episodes on psychedelics specifically like the history of an era of psychedelics that I don't think most of our listeners know about I haven't really heard talked about on other podcasts 
but it's something that I lived, uh, spent a lot of my life like sort of in the middle of. You got exposed to it. I exposed you partly to it. So yeah, we're 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 back in the saddle, ready to get psychedelic. Your new show on Colin is called Dosts, and so I think we've been feeling it. We've been feeling it in the air, even though for ourselves, I don't know if we're like actively taking psychedelics anymore. <laughs> Speak for yourself. No, just <laughs> is that true? No, absolutely. Um, well, it, <laughs> I'll, I'll reveal that later so on. Okay. Yeah, I'll reveal that later on. Uh, no, but it, it's totally true. I feel like we're entering a new phase of the psychedelic renaissance, I guess, where, you know, know, the kind of the post-prohibition era where over the last 10 to 20 years, you've seen new figures spring up, new organizations taking uh, trials seriously of psychedelic drugs, initiating those trials and putting them forth to push decriminalization legislation. And, you know, and even figures like people like Joe Rogan, for example, the Joe Rogan experience. I mean, the most popular podcast in the world. He kind of repopularized or re-entered this notion of DMT into the mainstream consciousness, kind of uh, pilled a lot of like younger people about DMT, of course, being in the Spirit Molecule documentary. Um, You know, and even someone like Michael Pollan, who was kind of like a generic... uh, author just talking about normal plants and vegetarianism and all of a sudden he switches over to writing about psychedelics talking about mescaline normalizing these kind of psychoactive substances in a way that it just wasn't really acceptable before you know you moved out of the bay area uh, a little bit ago but just being in the bay area still i feel like i'm sort of it's like almost like the canary in the coal mine zone it feels like for still pushing the envelope on psychedelics there was recently news about a Peter Thiel funded mushroom startup company. And I don't know what their exact <laughs> plans are, but I mean, that's wild to finally hear about like a Silicon Valley billionaire, not just secretly donating money or even publicly donating money to a psychedelic cause, which we're going to talk a lot about actually in the history that we want to tell in this podcast series. So apparently this Peter Thiel company, it's not his own company. They had a $125 million funding round and it was reported in CNBC that billionaire tech investor Peter Thiel has backed a Berlin startup aiming to make psychedelic drugs to treat mental health disorders. Thiel made a 10 million euro, $12 million investment in ATAI Life Sciences, which describes itself as a drug development platform, was set up to acquire, incubate, and develop psychedelics and other drugs that could be used to treat depression, anxiety, addiction, and other mental health conditions. And this is what Teal himself had to say about this. ATAI's great virtue is to take mental illness as seriously as we should have been taking all illness all along. The company's most valuable asset is its sense of urgency. (laughs) Right now um, in Oakland, or in, I think it's just Oakland, actually, the city council was somehow able to decriminalize psychedelic drugs in the form of like plant-based psychedelic drugs which includes mushrooms which should technically even include stuff like ibogaine i don't i haven't really heard of any ibogaine clinics opening up in oakland maybe there are some underground ones by now um this is all really happening very quickly it seems like this only passed like a year ago there's already a mushroom store near grand lake in oakland they don't sell like really high doses of mushrooms like whole eighths 
uh, you know, at least maybe not on their display case, but still it is pretty crazy to think there's now a mushroom store in California operating in Oakland that's able to operate. And it does seem like it has some money behind it. Like their, their marketing seems, um, very saturated. I see their stuff all over the place. They opened up a, I think a sister location in SF. Well, let me jump in there and just ask you, how is this trial balloon being pushed and explored legally in terms of opening storefronts that sell this stuff? Because weed was, de- you know, they're definitely pushing the envelope with like marijuana, cannabis dispensaries in terms of um, under the medicinal umbrella. And that was still pretty harshly received by the federal government and DEA. So how how actually is this legally happening if you're just decriminalizing these substances? I, I mean, I think one of the only answers I can come up with is that there is a corporate or big money interest now in like this as a marketplace somehow. Either they're sort of paying it forward, investing into the future of more decriminalization, because look at what happened to like the medical to recreational cannabis transition. I mean, for a while, even though medical cannabis here in California was a loophole, still very cutting edge, all these dispensaries opened up. But then when it transitioned to recreational, you just started, you could just smell it, that there was a lot of money suddenly mm-hmm. being poured in, a surplus of product being produced, tons of different dispensaries opening up. Some of them almost look like they were a little dot-com, like startup shop type places. Um, some of them, I'm sure, are mom and pop, you know, uh, just more those people are coming in. But there's a huge amount of corporate and big money coming into it now, and I don't know if that that doesn't answer your question about how this happened so quickly, like how decriminalization in Oakland happened quickly, but I think it's sort of linked together. It's like the, it's normalized things more because there isn't as much of a need for like a taboo drug war mentality when it comes to stuff that, you know, there's a marketplace for. And I think that that's kind of what it comes down to. I don't know how that mushrooms, I mean, if Peter Thiel is funding a mushroom startup company, it's got to be something there that I'm not seeing. So... Well, it is. It's kind of an interesting statement that, you know, Silicon Valley and these tech workers and CEOs and executives who are now repopularizing and kind of reinserting the idea of legalizing or decriminalizing psychedelic drugs or microdosing and going to Burning Man and doing stuff like this and bracing ayahuasca ceremonies. But it's kind of funny because Silicon Valley as a whole is really the, the entity that like gutted the whole cultural aspect of the Bay Area is like completely gutted and now there's just a shell of its former self. And it is fascinating that these are the same people who are now pushing this forward. But also, as we're about to explore, Robbie, um, it's not that crazy. There is a narrative that we're going to tell that involves all of the same Silicon Valley heads that we're talking about. Um, the idea was sparked very early on during the psychedelic renaissance during the 60s and 70s. So I guess it's not that strange. There's a movie, a famous made-for-TV movie called Pirates of Silicon Valley that was about how Bill Gates and Steve Jobs were like cutthroat thieves that you know climbed on all these other people's backs to get where they were and were just like tyrants. Those two guys, there's a lot of evidence out there that they were psychedelic users. I mean, they came out of the 60s. They were hippies. Even one of Microsoft's employees, one of their first founding employees, becomes a really big part of this story later on, oddly enough. The psychedelic lineage of the Bay Area really is sort of embedded in Silicon Valley, oddly. Mm-hmm. And like, I think we were even talking about this before we started, you, you know, you're reading more and more stuff every day. You were saying about how 
people are microdosing all the time at these, you know, like daily microdosing, just regular employees for some of these tech companies now, like Google and stuff. That to me is strange that there is like a productivity, you know, sort of like Silicon Valley utopianism view point of view on like capitalism, like technology will save us and, and solve the world's problems and we can make money and make things better for society in the process. It's sort of, I feel like it's sort of part of that because it's now if psychedelics are seen as like a productivity or creativity engine to serve this larger function or utopian vision of Silicon Valley. It's, um, there's a dark side to that, you know, in the past, as people like McKenna have written about drugs like tobacco and caffeine and even alcohol that were helpful for capitalism in the productivity marketplace, smoke breaks. And that's exactly why they're all legal and encouraged. I mean, exactly. It feels really surreal how it's not just that things are becoming decriminalized like in Oakland, that there's like a mushroom store, but I mean, just all over television. Like there's a Comedy Central show now that's like drunk history style, but it's like people telling their bad trips and they're, and they're like animated. And then I got sucked into that purple fabric and then I was in this other dimension. Hi, my name is Shane Moss. When I first started smoking DMT, I was going to these different dimensions and seeing these different beings, and I kind of thought it was all in my head. That's how normalized psychedelic usage is. I mean, DMT, everybody knows what DMT is now. Mm -hmm. Like 10 years ago, nobody did. So, I mean, I think that also just speaks to the power of the information on the internet. Even Alex Jones has like a famous rant now about the DMT elves. <laughs> <laughs> Army generals, commanding generals, uh, and I thought it was a psyop before, and then I've researched it, and I've talked to hundreds of people now, not on air, who've taken ayahuasca and DMT. I've not taken it. And San Francisco is the main project site. Literally have an alien uh, base, and they've got like astronaut-level people taking super hardcore levels of drugs and going into meetings with these things and making intergalactic deals. You know, I mean, it's so it's weird. All these things become mainstream. I mean, Joe Rogan not just helped mainstreamify psychedelics to a new era, but to a lot of like bros and jocks and stuff, yep. like bodybuilders and stuff who are like, and I think that actually led to a lot of those people doing like new tropics. So what this series of episodes is going to be is kind of an homage to our original psychedelics episode that got pulled, Robbie. Um, it was quite a long time ago, so I don't really remember it too well, but we're going to try to do it some justice by retelling some of those stories, reliving those experiences, and also taking us through the last 70 years of psychedelic history. Uh, the two waves of psychedelics in this country before prohibition, of course, the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and then again, you saw after the crackdown, the war on drugs of an underground renaissance of psychedelic pioneers throughout the 90s that, Robbie, you have an incredibly unique insight on because you were very close to some of these key luminaries and you got a chance to know some of these people very well. And that is the inside story that no one has heard before that we're going to take you through about the 90s and the early 2000s and why that was so impactful and so profound, especially coinciding with um, the proliferation of the internet and internet subcultures. And then we're going to go to where we are today, entering this new phase of post, uh, this post-prohibition, I guess I could say, of where we might be heading in the future with Silicon Valley, with these tech startups and, you know, how 
legalization of marijuana in several of these states is kind of serving as a jumping off point to normalize the idea, especially because at the beginning, marijuana was painted as the gateway drug to psychotropics and to the more dangerous, you know, sounding aspect of psychedelics. And so maybe this will have a reverse effect that now marijuana is becoming normalized and more people are accepting it as part of our daily lives, that more people will be open to the gateway that marijuana, uh, you know, can cause to a lot of these other substances. And of course, the benefits, the tremendous benefits that some of these substances can bring to humanity. Um, And so we're going to we're going to explore all of that. Stay with us. It's going to be a fucking awesome ride. We've been preparing for weeks on this series. And, you know, above all, Robbie, we just wanted to do something different um, because no one has really told this story in the way that we can tell this story, especially you, given all of your insider knowledge um, in the Bay Area through this era. Yeah, no, I'm really excited to talk about all this stuff. I've you know, been trying to figure out a way to tell this story for a really long time. And I think this is sort of a perfect opportunity to, because like a lot of these figures are not known about people like Bob Wallace, who I used to interact with on the internet all the time, who, and he used to interact with thousands of people, strangers all the time, giving them psychedelic advice is, you know, someone who played a key role in software, uh, the history of software. He was the ninth Microsoft employee. I mean, so yeah, there's just so much um, rich history that I'm really excited to tell people about. But I think before, you know, we get into all that stuff, we have to give people sort of a overview of the history that came before it. Especially people who are coming into this like who maybe just know what MK Ultra is in like a soundbite form or maybe people who haven't even taken psychedelics before and have no idea that the US government's history with not just buying large quantities of drugs, which later became Schedule One, the mostly legal category of drugs, but also experiment doing human testing with not just what we consider regular drugs, but lots of psychedelic drugs as well. Yeah, there's just so much there. But that would have to be a whole other podcast to do about the history of MK Ultra, and there are other people who are doing good work on that. There is a lot of disinfo out there about stuff like that, so. I would just advise people to be, you know, cautious. And there's also, I notice a rising trend in in people trying to turn the entire psychedelic 60s into an op, like everything in it was an op. And understandably, there are bizarre things that Abby's going to tell you about and connections that I could understand why people have constructed a larger web where they're probably connecting things that aren't really there. But in reality, they're probably, you know, there is some reason to believe that the U.S. government had a uh, reason to distribute, not just distribute psychedelics, but like to encourage their spread and things like that. So it's very fascinating um, once you get into the weeds of all of this. And that theme seems to even continue into the story I'm going to tell later in the, when, it, when we get to the 1990s. Absolutely. And I, I think that we need to talk about MKUltra because, of course, that is precisely why acid was bought and distributed by the U.S. government and these shell organizations that they set up um, at places like Harvard and Stanford. And so that really does bleed into everything that we're going to uh, discuss today, Robbie. And, you know, growing up in the Bay Area, we were about, what, 30 minutes from Berkeley, predominantly living in Pleasanton until you moved to Oakland. But we were always surrounded by a rich psychedelic culture, history, 
being that close proximity to hate Ashbury, to Telegraph Avenue, we were always surrounded by this type of imagery and consciousness. We were also, unbeknownst to me at the time, we were right near a very crucial landmark and where a lot of people think the hippie movement died, the Altamont incident, which was in Livermore. Like, we didn't even realize we grew up near that. Yeah, I mean, it really did encompass a lot of the Bay Area because a lot of these uh, parties, like the, you know, the the acid tests and stuff, I mean, it wasn't just in San Francisco. It was, it was in the larger Bay Area uh, structure. And so it really did bleed over to all these different spaces that we were uh, that we were in, Robbie, as kids. And it is just so incredible to look back at that time, the profound influence that psychedelics had on the culture, the art, the music, and how that spawned all future generations to incorporate uh, psychedelics in one way or another, even unknowingly so, despite their stigma in the mainstream. And I feel like in order to tell the story, we, of course, need to mention who discovered LSD in the first place. Because even though people may have heard this a million times, it is still fascinating that LSD wasn't even around 100 years ago. You know, I mean, it was discovered just seven years before mom was born. I mean, that's how that's how new, novel all this stuff really is. And that's how, you know, we're still exploring the facets of, of all these compounds today because it's been hard to do. Um, so LSD was discovered, of course, in 1943 by Swiss chemist Albert Hoffman. Uh, you know, everyone knows the story, Bicycle Day, where he accidentally dosed himself with the compound he was working on um, that he discovered and experienced the world's first acid trip. Um, and then he, of course, he had to take a bike home because he was too delirious. And that that was his experience. And, if, and soon the company he worked for called Sandoz Laboratories began manufacturing it. One, one thing I want to add from this is there's an interesting aspect of this story that I still don't know if it's a mythical or real aspect of the story where people, when they tell this story or, you know, in all history books, it says that he accidentally spilled this concoction on himself, on his hands, and that it soaked through his skin and made him trip. This was this is how he experienced that first bicycle ride. Now, from people I've talked to, a lot of people think that he might have just accidentally touched his mouth. You know, with that high of a concentration of LSD, you know, you probably had to put so little, like, on the tip of your lip, you know, to, like, have a massive, massive trip. So I, I think there's some dispute about how, if that actually is how he got it. Um, and there's still, for some reason, a lot of myth involved in just that idea. Like, you'll even see scenes in movies where this happens to people where they'll trip from like getting acid spilled on them and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's part of the stigma. It's part of the, the lore and mythology around acid to make people scared of it, I think, because that isn't true, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, just touching a doorknob that's not, you know, it's like all of that stuff is just kind of similar to the things that you hear about, like the AIDS scare and all that other mm -hmm. shit. It's like, it, it doesn't really add up. So yeah, it is curious, huh? How that initial story about him spilling it on himself I wonder really what the, the whole story was. Maybe he just spilled such a fucking enormous amount that it like yeah. got into something else. Like, and a, then he... <laughs> like a cut in his fingernail yeah, 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 or something. Yeah. yeah, like something happened there. That's the thing about LSD. It's like, it's so potent. Compared to other drugs like fentanyl and stuff, it's, very, it's a very, very potent drug. And you have to have very little of it um, to have a very strong experience. I mean, you could almost not see the amount you're taking. I mean... 
in fairness to people from other cultures around the world, the discovery of LSD, I would say, was a was like a milestone for like Western, you know, modern Western civilization using science to discover like a like a mind altering, powerful spiritual chemical. And previous to Albert Hoffman, cultures for thousands of years had already been harnessing natural versions of this in the same chemical family. So when he discovered LSD, which is in the tryptamine family, I don't even think he realized at the time that like psychedelic mushrooms, all these things around the world were basically in the same chemical family. The scientist just stumbled upon a random, very potent, similar chemical that was just completely synthesized. But, you know, then I think other scientists or himself realized that it actually did appear in nature in various similar forms, like in moldy bread, in the form of like ergotamine and different things like that. That's why people say the Salem witch trials happened because people ate moldy bread and they were actually tripping on acid, which is also probably a myth as well. Well, I'm glad glad you brought that up because I think it's really important to say that there are there's another psychedelic America that happened well before the discovery of LSD and the injection of LSD into society. And of course, that is the indigenous psychedelic America Mm -hmm. that existed before the 20th century. I mean, this was the peyote rituals. And mostly in Mexico, there is a a misunderstanding Mm -hmm. that peyote was a Native American tradition. And and after I did all this research on the Masonic stuff in the United States, it actually came from Mexico. Most of this stuff was Latin American, mm. ayahuasca, mushrooms, salvia, and that all that stuff wasn't discovered by the Western world until Hoffman and another guy named Robert Gordon Wasson did like a botanical study where they took in all the anecdotal information they had heard, folklore about psychedelic plants across the world, and they went out to these countries and took back samples and tried to chemically assess what they were. The first salvia cutting, for example, was brought back by Albert Hoffman and Robert Gordon Wasson 30 years before anyone even heard of salvia. Yeah, I mean, I just didn't want to erase the indigenous experience of of obviously having these compounds be integral to their lives and culture and, you know, religions and all of that. So um, it is definitely a Western introduction, kind of a, a coup for the Western world to be able to synthesize yeah, you know, and mimic these naturally occurring chemicals in plant form. So, just really quick, Abby, I just want to mention something that really blew my mind uh, while doing research for this podcast that I had absolutely no idea about before I started, and that is that Gordon Wasson, the guy responsible for this extremely influential botanical study and assessment of all these psychoactive and psychedelic plants from South America and other parts of the world. Um, he's basically the guy who brought psilocybin mushrooms back to the West. Well, he had his expedition funded by the CIA as part of their MK Ultra program. Now, you know you're going to get into MK Ultra a little bit later, Abby, so I won't go too deep into that now. But to what extent did Gordon Wasson actually know that he was part of this program or that he was even being funded by the CIA? Well, apparently he never disclosed it, because he didn't know. Now, did he know? Um, I haven't found anything to contradict the claim that he didn't know. Also, though, Irving Crystal, of course, famously said that he didn't know he was being funded by the CIA. So it's actually not clear um, how much was also funded by the CIA, but it has a 
very large section on his Wikipedia page that I'll just read what it says. Uh, it says, Wasson's 1956 expedition was funded by the CIA's MKUltra subproject 58, as was revealed by documents obtained by John Marks under the Freedom of Information Act. The documents state that Wasson was an unwitting participant in the project. And like a lot of these things, the funding was provided by a CIA front organization with a cover name, the Gesch Schitker Fund for Medical Research. And Wasson just evidence, I think, that he wasn't um, aware of the fact that this was a CIA front as he actually credited this fund in a Life magazine piece about his expedition. I mean, maybe he had some indication that it was happening. I have no idea. Anyways, very strange, uh, but get back to what you're saying about the U.S. government's purchase of LSD, Abby. Why the U.S. immediately, of course, once they got privy of the fact that uh, LSD was invented, it was completely over. And I want to paint this time politically because it's really important to kind of put yourself back at the moment where World War II had ended. The Cold War was beginning. This was the very beginning of the Cold War. The U.S. had just basically asserted itself as the global hegemon, dropped the two nuclear bombs. Um, its new focus and priority was like rooting out communism. The CIA was a relatively new and completely unaccountable organization that was looking for ways to advance its programs and develop new weapons. And at the time, understanding that psychology was like a relatively new field of study, the CIA was obsessed with the idea of mind control. And so once they became aware of the invention of LSD, they were already, like immediately by 1949, the CIA and U.S. Army had already be begun a first wave of psychedelic research and experimentation before they purchased the entire supply. So fucking so cutting edge, dude. This, I mean, is, just this is insane. 1949. So, I mean, just think about... Dude, 1949, that. they were already doing <laughs> underground psychedelic research, and, and I don't even know where they were getting the acid from. Here is part of an interview with the subject just before LSD is to be administered. My husband is an employee here at the VA, and he told me that they were looking for normal people, and uh, I volunteered. I'm a little, a little nervous, perhaps. Well, I think that's normal. Well, I think it's time for you to have your lysergic acid Drink this down, and we'll be back after a while and see how you're doing. This is a glass of water, colorless, tasteless. It contains 100 gamma of LSD-25, one-tenth of a milligram, the equivalent of one-six-hundredth of a grain. An ounce of this material will make 150,000 such doses. Let us observe the effect some three hours later. <laughs> well, tell me. Well, I just couldn't. I couldn't possibly tell you. It's, it's here. Can't you feel it? This whole room. This, this, everything is in color, and, and I can feel the air. I can, I can see it. I can see all the molecules. I've never seen such infinite beauty in my life. It's like a a curtain or a spider web or 
Can you see it? It's right here in front of me, right now. Watch. No. Oh, good heavens. You know, it went through me. It passed right through me. Could you feel it? I would... It would I would... Me? I wasn't any me. I mean, it's, can't you feel it? Everything is so beautiful and lovely and... and alive. You, you shouldn't say anything about anything not being... This is reality. This is... I can't tell you about it. If you can't see it, then you'll just never know it. I feel sorry for you. <laughs> What's your opinion on the, on that clip of a, a woman seemingly tripping very, very hard on LSD who had never taken it before? <laughs> She's just tripping complete balls. Totally blown away. I mean, you heard it yourself. She said she's never seen such infinite beauty. Yeah. She was plucked right out of the suburbs and catapulted into a fucking rainbow. And one of the, to me, one of the most interesting parts about it is she gets into this realm of feeling like she's, she can no longer like identify the separation between herself and other things happening in the room, except when it gets to the guy who's questioning her, she keeps identifying him as like something that is disrupting the flow of the trip. Like if he wasn't in the room, then like she would be able to like break through in some sense. She seems to feel, and it's also interesting that She's been given only 100 micrograms of LSD and tripping that hard. That, to me, is pretty much proof that the thing we've heard forever, that LSD in the 60s used to be way stronger per hit, that's actually probably true. <laughs> because we're, we're under the impression now that 100 micrograms is the level of like a hit of LSD you can get today. I would argue that it's probably more accurate that the hits that come out today, like a single hit, is more on the level of like 25 or 50 micrograms. Can you imagine taking one hit of acid and tripping this hard? You would think you had been given like an overdose, you know, of, of one hit. Usually one hit to by today's standards is not this strong for people. So that I think is fascinating that it's like, that was probably the normal LSD trip for people back in the, you know, 60s, even though this video was filmed in the early 1950s. Well, that's what's so crazy, reading all of these accounts from all of these psychonauts during this time, and they describe LSD in the form that they were taking it as a hundred times stronger than psilocybin. Wow. And so that, you really have to think of how potent was this stuff? Because you're right. Throughout all of this research, I keep thinking to myself, like, fuck, there's no way that they're talking about the same potency as, this, as the street LSD that we get today. Absolutely no way in hell. In 1976, the New York Times published an article that basically um, said that it was unconfirmed, but we, now we know it was confirmed, that in 1953, the Central Intelligence Agency purchased the entire world's supply of LSD. Now, this amounted to 10 kilograms. That is enough for 100 million doses. And they bought it for... $240,000. The world's fucking supply of LSD, dude. That's they so bought amazing. the world's supply. And, and I think a lot of it, like, they were so anti-communist that they actually, like, banned 
At the time, they they claim that the Soviet Union had bought 50 million doses from Sandoz in 1951, which prompted them to scoop up the rest. Oh but I don't even God. think that that's true, dude. I think that this was a planted story to make it seem less crazy that the CIA bought the world's acid supply. Of course. And also, they they banned um, like communist countries from getting these substances. By the way, so like some researcher in Hungary wanted to study uh, LSD, and because this this bled over for decades and decades because of all this anti-communism. And so, once the Controlled Substances Act and all these international treaties were like banning psychoactive substances, the anti-communism that underpinned this legislation like forbid all of these other countries from researching this. That's amazing. So we, we prevented all of the Soviet Union bloc countries that separated from the Soviet Union from like doing their own experimentation and therapy trials and all of that. So it's just, it's crazy. So bringing me to, to MKUltra, Sidney Gottlieb, you know, apparently, according to some sources, he is the one who facilitated the purchase. Um, and, you know, we can go on all day about, about him because he's such a madman. But what I think is really interesting is that MKUltra was one of several programs um, that the CIA was using and incorporating psychedelics to experiment on unwitting Americans to basically try to destroy the mind. Mm -hmm. You know, it gets really, really, really appallingly um, sadistic and evil later on when you really dive into MKUltra and see what they ended up doing. But at the beginning, there was Project Bluebird and Project artichoke which robbie isn't project artichoke what the movie the men who stare at goats was based on or am i tripping no i think it is i'm not super familiar with what that the name of what that's actually based on but yeah it is probably is there was another movie a famous movie and we talked about this i think even in our first psychedelic episode jacob's ladder which it's loosely based on something that actually really did happen even though the director himself like sort of took it back and said like yeah there's no evidence the military ever experimented with bz on soldiers um there actually is evidence that came out like unequivocal like proof of blood solubility uh like readings from like like human test subjects of bz a chemical that the u.s government invented and gave to people at edgewood arsenal thousands of volunteers received doses of a secret compound called bz A small dose would lead to complete stupor for three days, followed by loss of memory. The army wanted to see how quickly different doses could incapacitate their fittest and most intelligent soldiers. They had no idea that they were being given something so crazy. And basically what BZ was, is it was a a synthetic uh, derivative of like what people consider delirians. They're not considered hallucinogens because... They give you feverish like hallucinations based on like you basically being in a sickened state. This drug BZ was similar to Datura, Belladonna. Uh, those kind of plants have the same chemicals in them that cause these kind of feverish hallucinations. And there's like some pretty disturbing trip reports about be- people being given BZ at Edward too. So there is unequivocal proof that BZ was not just given to soldiers at Edgewood, the place where it was developed in the 1950s as a weapon. Low dose of agent was fed into the mixing bowl, and the longest weekend began for specialist fourth-class carpenter. 23 years old, he remained awake, experiencing hallucinations for a total of 36 hours. Carpenter recalled some of the things that had happened. 
What was this business over here in the corner? You were lying down and uh, looking at the wall. Well, the pores in this in the wall seemed to be. I was looking, and they seemed to be two armies on each side of one of the pieces of tape running down the wall. Two armies converging, and you guys could almost see artillery pieces and cavalry, like a civil war, moving to one point. It seems like they walked up to the a dividing line, and then everybody scattered. And then after that, I must have blinked my eyes, and just the wall in here. It was also used in warfare, apparently. According to NBC News, that BZ has been used several times over the past 40 years, most famously against the Viet Cong in the Vietnam War by the United States. In actual employment, this incapacitating agent would be dispersed by standard munitions, and the agent would enter the building through all non-protected openings. The Army's field manual describes the effect. Mild peripheral effects of BZ occur within one hour and maximal central effects occur after about four hours, lasting 24 to 48 hours with a peak at eight to 10 hours. Now, what's interesting about this NBC News article, Abby, is this actually was coming out accusing Russia of using BZ against the like uh, the hostage takers in that theater hostage crisis that happened in like 2002. Oh, yeah, that was really weird. It was weird. And it turned out that Russia actually used fentanyl. That what? was That was the... Uh, chemi- I thought it caused hallucinations, though. I don't know. I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to say I don't know enough about the story, but it, what, the point I'm trying to make is that this was an example of a U.S.-invented mm-hmm. hallucinogenic weapon. Were there... The U.S. news is accusing Russia of using it. Whatever the U.S. does, Russia must do it worse or something. Mm-hmm. When in reality, we dosed hundreds of people probably with BZ without having any idea what they were being given. Very, very disturbing. And it does, it it did give people a full hallucinatory experience. And if you want to read more about it, um, there actually is a really interesting admission by a CIA agent named James Moore who was tasked to work with BZ. He accidentally spilled BZ on his hand and wrote like his own lab report and you could see his writing get more and more crazy, like as he's writing about his own experience. And fascinatingly, this CIA chemist who was accidentally dosed himself with BZ, he contacted the army to be like, how do I get out of this? Like, what do I do <laughs> to end this? <laughs> and someone in the army was like, oh, take this like tetrahydra cannibal um, like substance as an antidote. So basically they gave him like a weed analog <laughs> to get him to stop tripping on BZ. Very bizarre story. Wow. I mean, the MK Ultra stuff gets so crazy when you hear stories about, like, even Jack Ruby, the guy who killed Oswald. Basically, there's reports of, like, them administering LSD or something to try to induce some sort of, like, psychosis or something in Jack Ruby. Who knows what the hell was really going on? I don't think that we'll ever really know. But just the fact that they were actually practicing the use of weaponized BZ against the Viet Cong is deeply troubling. It's really disturbing to think of how many people they dosed against their will, probably tens of thousands of people. We never will know the true number because Mm -hmm. they destroyed most of the documents. But, I mean, it's just crazy to think, Robbie, that MKUltra was a 20-year-long program, 1953 to 1973. I mean, it just it's such a huge amount of time. You know, I mean, God knows what they did. They did some heinous and appalling shit that can really only be amounted to mass torture for the sake of studying mass torture because they wanted 
to torture these people. They want, you know, sometimes they had prisoners being dosed daily for months, for months on end. There's a chemical in toad venom. One of the chemicals in the toad venom, you know, you hear about people smoking toad venom. There is a certain type of toad that has in its venom uh, what's called 5-MeO-DMT, similar to DMT, but more potent, actually. And the other chemical uh, that's not the 5-MeO-DMT, bufotinine, they gave it to prisoners. And there's, like, written documentation of these prisoners all almost dying. Because it's like toad venom. Good God. You know, part of the toad venom... Yeah. It's probably meant to like disorient the victim, like the animal victim, yeah. but like the other part, they were giving this to prisoners studying just this part for some reason. So, and this was like in the 50s. Dude, this it's just crazy that all of these people were getting dosed irregardless of their mental state or precondition to psychosis. CIA agents, random people, like literally like we joke today, like, oh, dose the punch of like Congress or something like that's what they were fucking doing to like their own agency workers sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And it's crazy because it's like it was not just, oh, let's study psychedelics to to study the mind. It, it was it was let's see how far we can bend the mind to make it work against its own interests. Like, can you commit self-harm? Could you assassinate someone on someone else's order? Or, of course, this fantasy of developing some kind of magical truth serum, which is mm -hmm. impossible. And, you know, within all of these, people have probably heard of Edgewood Arsenal. That's where they did a lot of these experiments. Um, Frank Olson's quote-unquote suicide or potential murder. Um, Operation Midnight Let's Climax. <laughs> <laughs> Operation Midnight Climax, uh, you know, just where they would they would lure unsuspecting Johns and have CIA goons like on a fucking double sided mirror, like studying them as they would increase their doses through the prostitutes that they were hiring. I mean, it just gets really, really dark. And here's you know, you mentioned ergot, you mentioned that um, being a fungus on bread. Well, this this just shows you how wide reaching and how insane the CIA was at the time. For decades, Robbie, people thought that that small French town of Pont-Saint-Esprit had experienced that mass poisoning, like shared hallucinogenic experience. Oh my God, yeah. From the psychedelic fungus on the bread at a local oh bakery. But guess God, what, dude. baby? Recently revealed in the last 10 years that this was part of the field testing by the CIA. According to a top secret document that was released recently or acquired recently in the MK Ultra series, most of them were destroyed. So we have no idea how wide reaching or expansive these quote unquote field experiments were, but they were urged. The army was ordered to launch several of these. We'll never know the true scale Dude, and scope that of them. Is but this town, fucking crazy. this town, hundreds of people all of a sudden started tripping to the point where no, it wasn't fun like Albert Hoffman riding a bike kind of delirious. This was like, all of a sudden, just imagine that you're just in fucking hell. Like all of a sudden, within one second, you are, your body is literally in a burning fucking eternal flame. <laughs> like, Wait, was this like that's acid? what some of these people, ex yes. Dude, like that it must've been so much though, that like the, like the people reported just scream, like this guy was just like, I would rather fucking die oh my than go God. through what I did. Five people fucking died. Dozens of people were injured. People tried to commit suicide. 
that is like that is a plot for a horror movie that's like straight up real. I mean, like that. I yeah. Mean, that's a horrifying. Anybody who knows what it's like to have a bad trip, or to be around someone like a friend while they're having a really bad trip, and you have to like console them and help them out. To think that you would per- subject an entire town to that. <laughs> It sounds like something in like Cabin in the Woods, like level yeah. insanity. Yeah, it does. Like it's almost hard to believe. Jesus fucking Christ, dude. Yeah, dude. And imagine not knowing that you're tripping. It's bad enough to be like, I'm taking the substance. Yeah, you then know. you think you're going crazy or something's wrong yep. with you or you're dying or you're having a stroke. Maybe some people thought that. I mean, yeah, wild. and I love how people are like, oh, there was a few deaths. And it's like, really? Because no, like everyone just talks about Frank Olson, which was horrific, you know, and people should look into that story. And that um, was all about, really all about bioweapons. They used LSD mm-hmm. seemingly as like cover, basically for what could just be just a straight up hit, where he was going to spill the beans on the bioweapons used in the Korean War. And they like wanted to throw a curveball out there and like, oh yeah, like we use that on acid. So like I mean yeah. that it's to me that's what the that, that's my Frank Olson thing in a nutshell. Meanwhile, what is strange to me is that DMT has a very more underground history, and it actually got synthesized in 1931 for the first time. Really, and it didn't get talked about as being a hallucinogen until the mid 50s. Now, sometime around 56, a Hungarian scientist which is interesting, you said that a scientist from Hungary tried to get acid and they were like denied. Well, this scientist, I guess he synthesized DMT himself and he administered it similar to Rick Strassman um, in his book in the 2000s to 20 volunteers by intramuscular injection. When? When was that? 1956. And in his paper that's titled Dimethyltryptamine, Its Metabolism in Man, The Relation of Its Psychotic Effect to the serotonin metabolism sounds very like you know just medical but the actual paper goes into like religious experiences so it's one of the first i think it is technically the first like written thing talking about the spiritual you know experiences or style of hallucinations people had on dmt and for some reason it just remained underground there is sort of a uh you know an american-centric point of view i think some people get stuck in this tunnel vision sometimes when thinking about psychedelic history and they forget that Aldous Huxley um, his book The Doors of Perception um, in the mid 50s was like hugely influential on people to I mean at least it was the first time a lot of people had heard of uh, LSD and the book was actually about mescaline specifically Um, but it was a jumping off point for people to start wanting to experiment with LSD now, I feel like there might be a missing piece here that I'm not aware of where like people understood that Aldous Huxley was sort of saying that you could have a similar experience from LSD or maybe he advocated for it elsewhere. I'm not sure, but in like upper class society, like in England, like in the acting class, like Cary Grant, for example, an English actor, he was doing acid every day for two years straight. He did psychedelic-aided LSD therapy, psychotherapy for a really long time, and he openly talked about it. Like it opened his mind, and there was lots of stuff he wrote about it. And this was all in the 1950s when it was considered like almost like you would see it written about in these like gentlemen's magazines, where it'd be like a guy in a suit smoking a pipe who looked like a rich, wealthy guy with like a family would be like, 
like I should take some acid because like this is like a, a you know like a it did there was no taboo is basically what I'm saying. Talk a little bit about that like the culture surrounding it, it was like the fact that someone like Cary Grant would be talking about it openly like taking it that much is just yeah. nuts. Well, I would think that I mean it didn't seem to be popular on the streets in the sense that it was this thing that was like posh academic people had access to at the time like which was strange that that's sort of how it first gained notoriety in you know culture i mean you could find plenty of old magazine articles written in the 50s that have like glowing descriptions of people taking lsd they almost sound like old timey you know 1940s 1930s <laughs> like adventure um sort of autobiographical retellings of like someone's like jungle trip you know down a river you know, someone like talking, you know, telling that when they come back to the United States in a little essay or something. It, they read like that. They're like these exciting, almost like comic booky, nothing weird, you know, no, no descriptions about being stoned or anything. It's just like this cool, intellectual, mind opening, crazy thing that, like, why not do this? You know, and then at the time, like, the beatniks were around, of course, like people like Burroughs. Uh, and his colleagues, they were writing about psychedelics in their writings, and they went down to like South America to to try to find ayahuasca. Somehow they were knowledgeable about it because they were just like such druggies that they were like trying to find like every conceivable drug, and they just sort of ended up discovering all these obscure psychedelics in the process. And but the beatnik movement as a whole was more of just like weed smoking. They would do opium. A lot of them would even do heroin. There wasn't really psychedelics being put into the beatnik movement. It was more just, again, like these intellectuals, the writers, you know, like Burroughs and the people that sort of surrounded him that were probably more actually tapped into like access to the drugs. So it's kind of more of a secretive thing, even though they were writing about it. Um, and so that's like the, how the Americans talked about it kind of at the time. And mm -hmm. I'm sure there was also some maybe like Playboy magazine articles about it being like cool. But it seemed like Aldous Huxley was the like sort of the driving force of it becoming acceptable in Europe. Aldous Huxley, it's well known that he requested to take LSD on his like last dying day, like in the hospital. On the day he died from cancer in 1963, Huxley asked his second wife, Laura, to inject him with LSD. It was the same day that President Kennedy was assassinated. And we were right here in this room. It was then his room, uh, and uh, he was getting very weak. And he said to me, give me a big, big piece of paper. And he wrote uh, intramuscular, 100 uh, microgram of LSD intramuscular. And I filled a syringe with it, and uh, I gave it to him. It was very quiet. At a certain point, I said, if you hear me, squeeze my hand, and he did, very weakly. Then I thought, uh, uh, I had the impression that maybe it was necessary to give a second shot, and I asked him, he indicated. So I gave him a second shot, and that, well, then it was about four or five hours, where there was absolutely no jolt, no agitation, nothing, except... It's very, very quiet, like a music that becomes less and less audible, like a, a going fading away. I mean, it seems like a good way to go out, but at the same time, what if we had like a bad trip, you know? Like, <laughs> I don't <laughs> that know. It seems so fucking intense. 
Yeah, I mean, maybe a little bit of acid, um, but even that, I, I, I don't know if that would help me enjoy the death more, you know? It might just make me more anxious to die. I don't know. That's a profound thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was definitely in it. He was in all the way. You know, aside from, like, the more horrific, torturous stuff about the MK Ultra thing, it is so fascinating tying into what you're talking about with the beatnik generation because Allen Ginsberg was one of the MKUltra victims willingly one of these student researchers who took the stipend because another huge aspect of MKUltra that I don't think I really understood before researching this episode is all of the institutional um, injection of LSD into academic institutions like Stanford like Harvard yeah. Um, and just other like clinics, you know, hospitals, other academic and elite institutions, different, you know, science academies, stuff like that. So at the beginning of the project, before it got like heinous, like completely fucking heinous, it was overseeing the distribution of LSD to all of these different institutions that were like kind of in these elite circles. And so the CIA was setting up all these bogus front groups to basically just see how test subjects would react to the drug in a clinical setting. And all of this did spark a a huge amount of research that we continue to build upon. So you had these institutions continue to do these fields of studies about psychedelics. um, And there was a thousand plus research papers written at the time about psilocybin, about LSD. You know, you had tens of thousands of people who were getting treated with these drugs. There was huge progress being made in understanding how they could alleviate things like depression or PTSD or even addiction. An interesting thing that I found through my research was that the um, Alcoholics Anonymous co-founder, Bill Wilson, even promoted LSD as like an option to for alcoholics. You know, don't get into the AA, you just take LSD. And, and he said that he did it and it helped him. So it's just so surreal to think that at this time, all of this was being done um, under the approval and guidance, essentially, of the U.S. government. I have three things to say to young people who are growing up in a psychedelic world. Turn on Tune in and drop out. On the other side of the country, in the East Coast, you had these academics turned psychedelic gurus, of course, like Timothy Leary and Ram Dass, who were dosing hundreds of academics and students at Harvard. And on the West Coast, you had a similar kind of thing going on where all of this research was happening about LSD from these front groups within academia and science. And thousands of people, a lot of them students from um, elite universities were willingly going in and getting these experiments done for daily stipends. Yeah. And from what I understand, you know, some of the stuff that later became part of the hippie movement, like free love and sexual exploration and, you know, mixing drugs together, that was already coming into the mix, even in these academia circles. And I think there was sort of this perception that Leary was a serious academic who wasn't like a beatnik or a hippie but then like people started to perceive him that way when he like i guess you know it became more of that atmosphere i overheard alexander shulgin once saying describing someone that he didn't like as pulling a leary 
he called it. Like as if it was like a, t- a thing, like an action, like a, like a negative thing to do. And I guess by that he meant like over-publicizing something that should be kept a little more low-key. Timothy Leary like cracked that door open like as hard as it could go. And yeah, it does seem like the CIA or you know people in the government like wanted that to happen, which is, I could see why people are very conspiratorial about like the whole hippie movement as a whole. I mean, I, it makes sense to me. Yeah, I mean, Leary did become kind of a cartoonish figure and and definitely the figure, like all of the drug criminalization was like centered around. Like mm-hmm. he was definitely an easy scapegoat. He was 39 years old, you know, when he had his first psychedelic experience where he claims he was like in the middle-aged process of dying. So to just embrace psychedelics like and dive off of the cliff as like becoming this guru type figure so late in life... I find interesting, but I think it was similar for all these academics at at the time is that, you know, they had gone through their PhD programs and they were like, in a lot of cases, they were already like teaching at these universities and stuff. It's just crazy to think of being that old, older than I am right now. And like starting to experiment with psychedelics when your ego is already like very rigid, you know, your worldview is more concrete you're way past the invincibility stage that you are when you're like late teens and early 20s. But here's where it gets really interesting, Robbie. Here's where it gets really interesting. A lot of people have posited that he was a Fed all along, right? That he was used by the government to be the scapegoat, to be this cartoonish figure that then could be taken down and be scapegoated for the entire war on drugs and that he was propped up for this very reason. Well, interestingly, in a 1966 interview with Playboy, he talks about his parents' military past and also his military past, which I was not aware of before. He talks about how he actually went to West Point because his dad was like a high-ranking army officer and that he and West Point is a very like prestigious military academy, you know. And so the fact that he was at West Point at all, I find very fascinating. He claims that he walked out after 18 months and that it really pissed his family off because, quote, he wasn't like interested in militarism. He was interested in philosophy. Here's another interesting aspect. He was also enlisted as an army psychologist before getting his Ph.D. at Berkeley. Yep. So that's really strange that he decided after leaving West Point to enlist as an army psychologist instead of just a psychologist. Why was he even wanting to enlist and work in the army at all? Well, that one thing I wanted to say here is that from what I understand, this was maybe one of the first times he did. Like he actually was involved in like a medical like experiment with, I believe, psilocybin at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, and... As an army psychologist, she actually ran a experiment with prisoners, a mental health um, mushroom experiment. And this study actually um, just left all these prisoners with like no mental health support after the fact. And oh, I was, great. for some reason, I was reading, I've gone into a rabbit hole about that. That's actually pretty common in these psychedelic trials. That's not abnormal. Yeah, the prisoners are like the total like animal guinea pigs. You know, if it wasn't Leary, um, a lot of people in the psychedelic movement would see this behavior as potentially like evil in 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 the realm of MK Ultra. So it is interesting that it's because it's Leary, it's almost seen as like, oh, hey, he was actually doing this good, positive work while he was a U.S. Army psychologist. Um, but the idea that he was propped up, I mean, I do think it's really interesting to look back on a lot of these psychedelic figures, not saying that 
could they have been actual feds, but were they signal boosted? We see so much of that these days where it's like, how do these random nobodies like get so signal boosted in the political scene? It just does make you wonder if certain people were sort of signal boosted um, in terms of how they were propped up. But that, I mean, beyond that, I don't know a whole lot about Leary. I'm sure other people could really school me, you know, on him, on him. So I don't think that he was a Fed. I think that what happened, interestingly enough, is that he became an informant after he escaped from prison. And sadly, a lot of his former friends and even his own son actually excoriated him, turned against him, and testified about how much he betrayed the movement and essentially like ruined this experimentation that they were doing. Um, you know, and this happened, of course, he got arrested for like possession of marijuana. It was a very small amount of marijuana. And he, w- I think he was like trying to transport marijuana through Mexico. And so there was two convictions that eventually brought him to prison. He was set to serve 10 years in prison, which is a lot of time, you know. And of course, we all know about the absurd war on drugs and the huge criminal sentences for nonviolent drug users. And so this is really no different. But I think that they definitely wanted to set an example of him, of course. So, I mean, yeah, you could argue that like he was maybe artificially propped up signal boosted by by some people and like the government and stuff but like at the end of the day he was he was a victim right of the war on drugs in itself because he was sent to prison he was cast out and and persecuted essentially here's the interesting thing too that shows you just how bizarre like that that era was compared to now it's like when's the last time there was actually like a successful like prison break <laughs> you know like the fact that this this kind of wiry guy was able to fucking escape from prison with the help of the weather underground yeah that i mean that's see if you get like into real conspiracy theory rabbit holes like that that also probably raises some red flags for people too but it's like Having being helped to escape from prison by the weather underground is does sound a little suspicious to me personally, but that's not like proof that he was, you know, what what people allege. I mean, I just think it's the the probably the main thing here that makes him look bad is the fact that he became an informant. Just as an aside for people who don't know what the weather underground is, um, very interesting history there. It was a it was a militant left wing organization that's explicit political goal was to create a revolutionary party to overthrow U.S. imperialism. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like an insane time, you know, like yeah. the fact that this group they there was bombings, they were targeting government buildings and banks, like a total side story that we could go off on an entire episode about, but it's it just crazy how all of this coalesced, the fact that members of the Weather under, Underground helped get Leary out of jail, so bringing us to the fact that he became an informant. So he was caught in Switzerland after he escaped from prison. Then he was he was sent home, and that's when he decided to collaborate. So this is according to a 1999 article from The Independent, um, where it says the 60s counterculture guru who urged the world to tune and turn on and drop out collaborated with government agents and informed on friends in the left-wing underground to obtain his early release from prison, according to the FBI documents just published on the internet. Leary, who died from prostate cancer three years ago, aged 76, preached anti-establishment slogans all his life, but in the early 1970s, facing the possibility of life in jail on drugs and other charges, it seems he changed his mind. Quote, I want to get out of prison as quickly as I can. 
He told the FBI, I'd like to work out a collaborative, intelligent, and honest relationship with different government agencies and law enforcement. The files suggest he was of more intelligent value than evidentiary value, and his statements did not amount really to any prosecutions. Most of the evidence that he put forward involved naming names of the weathermen, detailing their role in his escape, and who knows what else, right? The names are deleted in the files, which appear on a website devoted to unearthing old government documents called the Smoking Gun. Now, it's kind of fucked up, you know, that he would out this group, these militant left activists that helped him escape prison and probably secured him to travel to Switzerland to try to hide, and then he just basically rats them all out. And here's, here's a really fascinating... New York Times article that came out in 74, just a total excoriation from Leary's son and two of his closest friends, including Ram Doss and Allen Ginsberg. Um, and they basically had a, a huge press conference and they basically called their former hero, Tim Leary, a cop, a liar and a paranoid schizophrenic. They talk about they they derided him harshly and bitterly for what they characterized as his betrayal, and they just go on and on. I mean, Timothy Leary's son said they hated his dad now that he had wow. nothing but contempt for his father, and he was like, his actions come as no surprise to me. I know Timothy lies at will when he thinks it will benefit him because oh, lies are easier to control than the truth, and it just goes on and on and on. I mean, here's a really kind of sad, um, you know, summary of this is like Baba Ram Dass uh, calls for a moment of silence at this press conference. And then they basically sum it up by saying this is the death of the 60s. It's sad. There was a, there were several uh, uh, moments that were the death of the 60s. There. <laughs> like you, you could name uh, probably like 50 of them if you wanted to. I can turn you, the younger generation, on your own spiritual potentialities. But if I do so, I get in trouble with your parents. But that's not completely hopeless, because I can also teach you how to turn on your parents and gently and lovingly open them up to some of their possibilities. But the hitch here is that your parents are imprinted on grandmother and grandmother is dead and I can't turn her on. About six years ago, after my first series of psychedelic sessions, I realized that it was within my power to select and play almost any game or even to deal myself out of games internally. I decided at that time that the game I wanted to play was to become the holiest and wisest man of my generation. Specifically, to expand and elevate the consciousness of the entire human race. I don't know how pervy or sexual Tim Leary got. I know that he did claim that LSD was the best aphrodisiac in the world and it would give a woman thousands of orgasms. 
And uh, in an interview, he was asked, well, how many orgasms can a man have on it? And he kept like dodging the question. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, but it's weird that he just ends that clip by saying like, how to turn, how do we turn on grandma? I can't turn on grandma because she's dead. (laughs) What a weird, it's like his voice. Mm-hmm. At least uh, to me, it just sounds kind of like scammery, st- like stoner flake. But that's that's Tim Leary. He liked to find that almost like male vocal fry hippie voice. It came across as total narcissistic, kind of self-delusional. You know, the fact that he's going on and on saying that his goal is to basically be the most famous, well-respected like psychedelic, like psychonaut, and like, like psychedelic it? researcher. It's just like why, the why, most... like that, like that's what you come out of three hundred acid trips with, you know? Yeah, I mean, the, again, it's it speaks to this level of ego. Let me tell you about turning on. There are as many levels of consciousness as there are anatomical structures in your body for receiving and decoding energy. The five most important levels of consciousness are sleep, symbol, sense, cellular awareness, and molecular consciousness. Each of these levels of consciousness is based on anatomical structures in your body and each level is attained through chemical means. In the future, the educated man will be the one who can move his consciousness deliberately, planfully, and precisely from one level to another for specific and harmonious purposes. For the last few months, I've been lecturing to audiences about the psychochemical revolution. I tell these audiences that in the future, the question will be asked, not what book do you read, but which molecules are you using in your learning process? It's just interesting that this is Leary's big pitch, unedited, unrestricted it's just like a, an hour long diatribe that he gives um like from it sounds like he's like in a, like a bunker and he's just like talking really softly this was tim leary and you can hear for yourself what his goals were and i wouldn't really call them like that profound you know it's not really like a profound intellect or imagination no. and it's also funny just the style in which he talks like this is like tailor made for like three times playback speed or like removing silence <laughs> like the amount of silence it's like one third too, of yeah. the entire recording is actually like words spoken by him the rest is like gaps mm-hmm. it also seems like as an academic he really has trained himself at least to me to not say like um or say anything that sounds stonery mm-hmm. even though those mm-hmm. long gaps it makes him to me seem like less humble I would almost feel like he was a more down-to-earth guy if it sounded like he talked more like a normal person yeah like a stream of consciousness like you're you're not worried about how you sound you you do fuck up you do say um but he's like very deliberate it's like the gaps of of time where he's thinking of what to say next seems almost like 
it's a very deliberate kind of con artistry way of formulating sentences and just the way that he talked and the way that he felt about himself is is a turnoff to me. And you can kind of see it expressed more in this Playboy interview. I mean, good God. The shit that he talks about, there's like two or three pages of him talking about the aphrodisiac. Oh, you read of the LSD same interview. I essentially, did. <laughs> dude, and how and how basically how basically it was like that like that's what he thought like the actual goal was. Like like he even says in this interview, he's like three inevitable goals during an LSG trip, and I'm summarizing it because I don't actually remember what it says, but he was like the basically the three goals are making love with God, making love to yourself, and making love with a woman. Like, really? That That's... And then he goes on and on and on to talk about how, like, you need to fuck women, like, on LSD. Like, that's the only way that you can really experience, like, what an orgasm is. It's just it's just an odd kind of thing to spiral out well, on when we're talking about this movement and opening your mind and consciousness to, like, go and, and obsessively talk about, like, orgasms and sexual sexuality is just interesting. And in such a heteronormative way, too. That's what stands out to me the most. Because you would think... And maybe this makes me sound a little weird to people, but I would think that psychedelics would open people's minds to such an extent where there'd be more, more like open talk about homosexual sex or queer sexual activity in general. Like this orgiastic activity blending, mm. you know, the the line between he, um, heterosexuality and homosexuality blurring <laughs> in a way. So it's interesting like how heteronorm- how there weren't any like psychedelic authors who were openly talking about like exploring um, homosexual feelings or not only having sex with the opposite gender. Um, for, cause for example, Alistair Crowley, who came many, uh, decades before Leary openly, um, mm-hmm. did psilocybin, did other drugs. He traveled the world taking all different kinds of psychedelics that were around at that time and like moved in this direction of being like, yeah, the sexual, like Matt, the, the sexual ecstatic experience is like a big part of my philosophy. And when you open that door up enough, it's like you expand it beyond just having sex with the opposite gender. Like he went, like there is literally instructional rituals he wrote about like having anal sex um, with other men and things like that. So it's very, mm-hmm. it, to, that's one thing that's interesting that stands out to me about Leary and a lot of these other psychedelic figures is, um, especially from his era, is there's a very heteronormative framing all around it. Where at the same time is this this idea of free love, um, so I don't know. I find that kind of interesting when you when you think about how things how much things have changed today and the fluidity and the way people look at sex and gender. Absolutely. Like I always knew Alistair Crowley was like very, like the sex magic shit, but this is like I I actually didn't realize that this is such a strong aspect of timothy leary's advocacy it makes sense i mean even mckenna i mean which we're going to talk about later uh-huh. he in his little uh spoken word um techno album he's like we need to get rid of the three like the three main things that are standing in the way of society like patriarchy monogamy and he's like so it's like all <laughs> these things are really baked into you mm-hmm. know the idea of at least polygamy um and mm-hmm. uh, being poly you know not uh, being monogamous is sort of like it seems intrinsic with a lot of these psychedelic thinkers in general. Mm. Yeah, I mean, last thing I'll say about Leary is like his wife was pretty outspoken to the press, talk at trying to explain, you know, her husband's like line of thinking, especially as he was in prison and stuff. And 
She basically just said, it's just funny. She's like, we're trying to give peace a chance, Robbie. Like, that's what this is all about, you know? And, and he was very explicit about how he doesn't even try to reach out to adults and that it's all about kids, basically, teenagers and young adults who are not turned off, quote unquote, by the by the word drugs and by the mantra of what they're teaching. And, and she said, of course, the kids want to turn off. The world is conceived by their elders, contains very little joy and beauty. We're trying to give peace a chance, man. Valiant effort, valiant well, now effort. Now I understand Timothy. <laughs> why a lot of people in the psychedelic community look down on him. I mean, and and think that he overdid it. Um, so it it makes sense to me. I mean, once you're in that realm, where you are like, I'm overtly only trying to reach young people. I mean, not mm-hmm. all young people are like, it, you know. There's a lot of problems with young people that that also apply to the old people who are stuck in their ways. Like, so it, it just, I I just think it's an interesting reveal in a way i mean it does explain a lot of i think why he's negatively looked mm-hmm. at um amazingly the the co-founder of the palo alto historical association some guy um go- is going around doing like a lecture series right now talking about the psychedelic history of silicon valley and there's oh, an article written about uh, one of his talks from the Palo Alto online that is uh, quoting him. It says, Palo Alto and Menlo Park became hotbeds in the 50s and 60s for research into use of LSD in business, which then grew into a movement with a goal of harnessing the collective human intellect. The thinking was that computers and artificial intelligence could be the engines running that large pool of thinking. Jesus the International Christ. Foundation of Advanced Study and Stanford Research Institute, SRI, and Menlo Park, and the Stanford University Artificial Intelligence Laboratory in Palo Alto became the centers for this research. That is now here's a crazy. here's a really interesting thing that really shows you just how wild this shit was. Willis Harmon, another electrical engineer who taught physics and electrical engineering at Stanford in the 50s, taught a Stanford graduate seminar called the Human Potential which included topics on meditation, psychoactive drugs, and parapsychology. He became a social scientist at SRI, one of the CIA front groups, where the Alternative Futures Project was to introduce business and thought leaders to LSD. Wow. Now, that is fucking really fascinating that the CIA really was overseeing that. That is so wild. I want to, like... I mean, maybe there's stuff out there, but like, what was their actual impetus for doing that specifically? Like, what was that's their what goal? I want to know? Was it they that's were like, I want to know? We believe in the power of LSD to like create like innovation. <laughs> like, I know that's I what's mean, so weird about it. And it is, yeah, it is very strange. But, I mean, think of how many young engineers were products of the '60s and '70s had experiences like this. I mean, you mentioned Steve Jobs, mm-hmm. Apple co-founder, inventor of the PC. He himself says that he saw a greater possibility after LSD, that LSD altered his sense of reality, including spatial relationships and time, (laughs) and that it was a huge spark of innovation for his work. Yeah. So I don't know if he was there and part of this uh, web that we're talking about, but it makes sense. Well, the creepy thing to me that after you said that, this thing about approaching business leaders is like, I wonder, you know, that's whatever philosophy went behind that. I wonder, like, if this is part of what's being sparked again in, like, corporate 
you know, the corporate yep. Silicon Valley world now. It's like some kind of AI psychedelic brain neural network thing. It's creepy to think because I used to have this view that this more naive view that psychedelics made you like it put you more in touch with something that like inherently made you like more of a good person or or more of a um like you, you couldn't deny things that were sort of in front of you like there were these I had these like kind of naive conceptions of psychedelics I don't anymore I mean I definitely think that they are their engines of creativity they could you know be they probably could be good for innovation but like I am curious how they you could it's, it is like the CIA tried to harness this shit and they obviously couldn't really ultimately harness it I mean it, you know look so like what did they think they can do with I, I don't know I just I'm no just no, no. Sort of, I, I no, no, I totally agree with what you're saying. And I used to think the same thing, that it's like everyone needs to take psychedelics. Like if we could just do a big punch bowl and dose like Congress or like, you know, all these well, we shitty people that, in the world. But... Like, yeah, yeah. But all these like shitty people in the world who, you know, if they just like took psychedelics. Blah, blah, blah. But I think that like McKenna says, psychedelics are a reflection of you. Like they can't make you good. Like they simply reflect not only your state of mind, your environment, like your the preconditions and and your preconstructed identity mm-hmm. like all of that is part of the psychedelic experience that is very unique to you it's like an individual experience yeah you could exactly. tap into this like idea of a collective or like a unified consciousness or something like that but like at the end of the day it's like what are you bringing to the table exactly. and how is that going to shape your experience and like i've kind of realized that like if you're just like a fucking horrible person you're not going to come out of a trip being enlightened <laughs> like, or just or, like narcissistic you know, personality disorder it could it could actually it could like actually double down on the worst aspects of your personality mm-hmm. it can give you a god complex it can you know reinforce some really negative characteristics i'll say on the flip and side ego driven yeah vibes on the flip side i think at a certain dosage of psychedelics, you can turn anyone into like a quivering, you know, infant who's like forgotten oh, yeah. everything about their name. They, you know, they don't know anything. They don't know. It, like, so like that, you could achieve that with psychedelics, but it's like, what happens after that when they come yeah. back? How do you integrate that? Is the, that's the thing. It's like, you're coming back to your old personality. So if you're like a narcissistic personality disorder type person, you're basically bringing in information combating with something that's like going to reject it all yeah exactly i mean we're probably using a lot of lingo people don't even understand i mean one of the main characteristics of psychedelics that i think people talk about who do more than just like you know try shrooms once or try acid once is this idea of like ego dissolution and something that happens on a high enough dose of usually like tryptamine psychedelics like lsd or dmt it's almost like a temporary like amnesic state where you basically cannot you you forget basic things and you lose all your sense of self to certain people that feels almost like a death because that's for a lot of people that is all they know about themselves i mean that is most most people know about themselves their own self-conception about themselves so once you remove that it can simulate the feeling of death and this is sort of like why a lot of people have these spiritual profound experiences on psychedelics maybe that's why Aldous Huxley took LSD on his deathbed because on some level he connected the near-death experience or the experience of dying with that ego dissolution on LSD 
So, sorry, I didn't want to take and, too much of a No, and then, of course, you get into DMT and how there's evidence of it existing in the pineal gland. And then, of course, going back to millennia and all the iconography of, you know, the Egyptian culture of showing Horus and the third eye. And um, it just becomes really fascinating when you start mm-hmm. to unravel this and figure out that, like, scientists didn't realize that until last century. You know, and, and like, how did all these ancient cultures know that, like, that was this unspoken kind of power of, of our mind that you could have these kind of experiences, you know? And that's why people have speculated that they do cause near-death experiences or, or that DMT is released when you are dying or even potentially when we're just sleeping. But I guess that's all still being... I guess we can get into that later, but... We all the stuff about DMT and... Even, yeah. I've even seen some people say that like DMT runs through our system and is what creates consciousness. You know, there's been all these different mm-hmm. theories about it, and I think it's it's hard to, you know, because some of the authors and people we're going to talk about right now are a little bit they get far out and they have gotten yeah. stuff wrong. But that's part of what's fun about some of these people, as they were so non pretentious in a lot of ways that they were willing to take a lot of these leaps and willing to look foolish. You know, they, right. they they didn't they weren't embarrassed about doing that. And I think that that's in some ways admirable, but in other ways not. And we'll go into that. But why don't you finish the discussion yeah. about the 60s um, and the 70s yeah, with absolutely. Nixon? So all of this kind of academic, um, science-minded uh, business leader initiatives that we're introducing, like potential future CEOs to acid and psychedelics – all of this intersected at that moment in time with the broader cultural and spiritual movement in the Bay Area that, of course, was spawned and shaped by psychedelics. Uh, you had this kind of stuffiness of the 50s blossoming into this revolutionary counterculture. But at the same time, we have to remember that the rest of the country was still quite stuffy and conservative. There was only a few pockets of this of um, this kind of cultural outbreak of the norms you know, the, the yeah. societal norms of the um, the suburbanite whatever, like that defined, you know, everything that we knew about American culture, like that was pretty dominant in this country. So this, this is why this was so special, um, this revolutionary fervor and counterculture that really sprang into action, inspired by the generation of the beatniks, Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, all of this bled into each other. A lot of these figures continued, like you said, were also figures, um, prominent figures in the psychedelic movement of the Bay Area. Suddenly you had LSD injected everywhere. Just picture all these buttoned up suburbanites, you know, especially when we're talking about these front groups, you know, these elite institutions and stuff, basically just rejecting the only world they had ever known. And even things that were just so egregious, like clothing. I mean, like it was common totally. for like hippies to be fucking be nude and flash, and you know all these things. Like it just, it, it just was so in your face. The LSD people were already smoking weed, and the beatniks probably already like irritated these straight laced people. But the hippies, I mean, it just was came hit so hard. Yeah, it just it's just exploded. Yeah, and and it's crazy when you think of who was. Who came out of that that we remember today that were such huge, pivotal icons of that movement, right? Grateful Dead, uh, Ken Kesey, Robert Hunter, the Grateful Dead lyricist, and Ken Kesey were both voluntary test subjects of MKUltra. 
and Allen Ginsberg, like I mentioned before. So you have them. I mean, there's probably many others, but those were two documented cases. Um, and, you know, Ken Kesey, who later wrote One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, based on his experience in the MK Ultra experience, went on to be a complete guru um, where you hear of the, you know, the acid tests. Can you pass the acid test? The acid test was breaking out into an area in which it had no specific goals. It was just discovering what there was out there if you just continued to move away from the norm. And, but, and when we got to the end of it, we really had a sense of what the acid test meant to a lot of people. It was a test, and there were people that passed, and there were people that didn't pass. He hosted huge parties in the Bay Area called acid tests. They would put these flyers everywhere saying, can you pass it? He formed a group called Keezy and the Merry Pranksters. They would hold Grateful Dead concerts and basically give thousands of people who attended acid-laced punch. Everybody knew from the very beginning that this was right, and it was going to continue uh, just the same way that uh, those flowers bloom, that it's genetically... Uh, purposeful. It knows what it's doing and it will grow to its proper height and uh, it will bear a flower. And all we have to do is keep people from tramping around in the flower garden. Because there's a moment when you see something like that, there's a crack in your mind. And you know it's a trick, but you can't figure it out. And that crack lets in all the light. When that little split-second thing happens, when the dead are playing, and everybody in the audience goes, wow, did you see that? That is the, that's the moment, and kids will watch five hours of mediocre music to have that one click happen, because that is, puts them in touch with the invisible. This goes to show either that, you know, it's, it's a combination of two things. Like, acid was so potent and probably still so cheap because this is, mind you, it wasn't illegal yet, and it right. wasn't like was it wasn't like legal. a prescription drug or anything. It was just you could just buy this shit. So, I mean, how did he know where to get it? And like, was the CIA encouraging this? I mean, well, apparently, this chemist named Osley Stanley started making and distributing LSD through the Grateful Dead, and then funded the band through the profits. So there was this chemist who was working with the Grateful Dead and with. Keezy and the Merry Pranksters with these acid tests that he was like the main supplier and also like went back and funded all this shit through the profits of the LSD. They had a whole engine. Yeah. There was a couple chemists that were, you know, also operating because it was legal and so there was no, you know, legal risk really at the time and so they mm. were just fucking having fun, dude. <laughs> like just taking it and running with it. Like, wouldn't you? crazy it's just crazy to think of this time like anti-war vietnam protests escalation of the vietnam war the free speech movement at berkeley mario savio on the steps you know the revolutionary black panthers doing armed marches on the state fucking capital you had this crazy like militancy of the civil rights movement and at the same time this burgeoning explosion not even burgeoning it was a fucking explosion of culture in san francisco the psychedelic renaissance iconic bands jefferson airplane uh janice joplin yeah. grateful dead it was like kind of like the perfect spark you know that the cia comes in and is just like here <laughs> like yeah 
there's a lot of authors who've written things about Charles Manson and um, implying that he was sort of propped up by the federal government and like he they wanted him to like help brainwash people and make cults and things like that. I haven't looked too deeply into that stuff, but Charles Manson and the Sharon Tate murder is like seen largely as like the sort of this bookend to the hippie movement. All these crazy hippies, like this is what happens when the hippies go too far. People really did disassociate themselves very quickly from the hippie movement after that. And it wasn't just that, it was also the Altamont incident that I was talking about earlier where the Rolling Stones uh, did a free concert. They decided to do it somewhere near Altamont Pass in Livermore. And it was like so last minute and the organization was like so fucked up that they they had to get like last minute security or else they weren't going to be able to actually do the show that was going to be canceled. So they ended up getting Hell's Angel to do security, which was like a pretty violent biker gang. And the Hell's Angels ended up beating like several people to death in front of like the stage while bands were trying to perform. And it was remembered as one of those things where it was like, this is what happens when like, you know, you just try to do this like free love thing, do a free concert. And, you know, this is what happens when you let the hippies run things. And it kind of symbolized the end of this, you know, this honeymoon. I mean, I guess LSD itself was in the mix with Charles Manson. It was like considered like he, he used it to brainwash his followers. But I'm trying to, I don't think there was ever like one significant or major incident where it was like acid, is evil we need to stop it i mean the government did try to put out propaganda saying that like people like the merry pranksters like more like guerrilla terrorists were going to like cover doorknobs with acid and they even went as far as saying that they would use like a chemical that does allow drugs to be transferred to the skin dmso that like these terrorist hippies were, were gonna like be spraying doorknobs with dmso mixed with lsd <laughs> Uh, you know, all over the country. So, like, when you least suspect it, if your hand is sweaty, you know, be, watch out. You know, you might get, you might start tripping. So the government was, like, trying to scare people like that. So, and I don't know if there's, I mean, I don't know if you have any insight on that, but I can't think of, like, a single catalyzing event where LSD was seen as, like, we need to stop this scourge immediately. It was more like the entire hippie movement. Feel like it, no, exactly. Embodied. It was more everything that I just outlined. It was more like the association of LSD with all of the other stuff that was going on kind of left a permanent stain. And I think the more conservative elements of this country coupled with, of course, media propaganda and just put the political crackdown. Yeah. Um, because it was just seen as just such an uncontrollable thing. It was so chaotic and uncertain and scary for people. I mean, it's kind of like I kind of compared to like the Black Lives Matter riots you know, and how much that mugged people into reality. You know, John Lennon himself, of course, the Beatles were a very iconic band during this time, too. You can kind of see the trajectory of their music becoming much better once they introduced psychedelics and heroin. <laughs> um, but, you know, even John Lennon said, quote, we must always remember to thank the CIA and the army for LSD. They invented LSD to control people. And what they did was give us freedom. So, <laughs> Wait, is that a real quote? Yeah. Um, well, I guess it just brings me to like what we were saying before, which is like, do you, like, did this whole program backfire? The CIA was trying to preserve something. That's what the CIA does, right? Status quoism, trying to reinforce the, the power that they had already accumulated in the world and control it. And so 
Was it an un- unintended consequence? Did the CIA completely undermine their own purpose in doing this um, when they used this tool to weaponize against the population? And in fact, it was weaponized against them in a sense because of this huge revolutionary upset and fervor that then catalyzed all of these movements and events and actually did progress a lot of human and civil rights in this country. Or, like we were saying yesterday, is there kind of an aspect to this movement that we romanticize, but, you know, was it kind of, you know, was was there kind of like a narcissistic element that came out of it? Was it kind of diluting in a sense that it lacked cohesion and, you know, like, I, I don't know. I mean, I wasn't there. And I do kind of romanticize just the hippie movement in general because of just how fucking awesome it sounds like researching it now (laughs) but like you know I mean we don't know really how it was or like how political people really were was it all synchronized with like radical communist ideology anti-capitalist you know line of thinking like was this all part and parcel with the LSD psychedelic culture and you know was it kind of separate did it actually dilute that In general, I think that the hippie movement started as like a very experimental, mostly uh, self-indulgent, self-discovery kind of thing. A lot of people were were discovering themselves. And that was what I think, you know, from just looking at it, from not having lived through it, that to me seems like one of the core elements of it. And that's not necessarily like an inherently bad thing. It's just, I think maybe if the hippie movement and like LSD was not made illegal, which you're about to talk about, then I think that it would have been really interesting to see how it would have flourished eventually. It would have helped propel more some of these radical movements if it got a chance to evolve and mature and become maybe a little more selfless um, at a certain point. Because yeah, it lacked cohesion. Psychedelics inherently aren't going to make people want to work towards the greater good. I just don't think it existed long enough. Well, because it's like it's like the age old question. Everyone's always like, well, what the fuck happened? Because then we got all of these crazy concern, like the backlash and the reactionary movement and Ray and Reagan and Nixon and all of the shit. And it just we went down like a hellish couple decades where, you know, it was like, where did all those baby boomers go? What happened to them? I how think could it also became dro- how could you tune in? drop the fuck out and then become like a crazy racist again who's just reinforcing all this like the worst aspects of the status quo it starts with the tiniest little thing i mean like even just like something like go watch an episode of laugh in and it's like it's almost like a offensive how like cringy like 60s psychedelic like hippie eyes it is and it's it's like it's almost like unfathomable that that's what like mainstream culture like became at a certain (laughs) point you know what i mean like austin powers level like yeah, ridiculous, yeah, 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 yeah. like psychedelic, <laughs> silly. And like, I think that also probably had something to do with it. Like if I saw psychedelic culture turn into not just that, but also like eventually end with Charles Manson, it, it would, it would, you know, I'm, I'm not saying it would make me question all my beliefs, but I could see how people would be like regretful or feel like they want to move on from that era. There's something about it that feels simultaneously like it went too far, at least aesthetically. <laughs> But yeah. like, it didn't really go far enough, you know, in in terms of actually maturing into a, an actual like radical revolutionary movement. I think. And I think it's just like any other movement. It it's like when the spark hits, you'll see the masses 
coalesce under like the banner of something that's really novel, like this this renaissance of psychedelics. But then, you know, as it dissipates, of course, you'll still have the people who it's like we're meant to find it and like pursue their passion, you know, and that's what we saw a lot of these visionaries who continued and we're about to talk about who said like we never left. Like, what do you mean what happened? Like we were always here and yeah. we were always doing the work. We were just forced underground. And so it's like, yeah, I think the majority of people like went back and just went, you know, because it was never like it never meant anything more to them mm -hmm. than just being a part of that zeitgeist. And I think correctly so. Some of these people, maybe the more visionary ones, identified that the drugs, the LSD, right. the, the mushrooms seem to be one of the biggest factors here and people exploring these in mass and you know, it just experimented them with all in all different ways. And, you know, people like um, Terrence McKenna, uh, for example, some of his earliest writings alongside of other mostly anonymous people, of course, because mind you, this was after the DEA crackdown and scheduling, turning LSD into Schedule One substances as illegal as heroin. Um, people like Terrence McKenna and others were writing under pseudonyms in the 70s and 80s about how to grow magic mushrooms or how to make LSD. There was a very famous LSD manufacturing guide. I think it was under the name Uncle Fester. It's like a rare book that's like worth like hundreds of dollars because it's considered one of the more, more like pioneering, edgy, you know, books to come out in the 70s underground market that was like straight up, just here's how you make LSD. Apparently inspired a lot of LSD chemists. So this is like what was happening in the 70s. So it was very underground to the point where most of these people who were probably the visionaries were like even afraid to write in their own names. Totally. You know, similar to the cultural backlash we're seeing today or the cultural Marxism, uh, the cultural embrace of things like LGBTQ rights, you know, and questioning things like gender norms today, where you see a lot of conservatives just hysterically blame the hippies of today, the leftists, the communists, basically people with no power for their continued degradation of their lives and just society in general. And so it's just that that standard thing that cycles through every couple generations or every couple years, rather. The bums lost. Yeah, it's like the unraveling of our, of our social fabric and our political system and society at large can't be because of the government's failures or like actual concrete policy. No, it's the fault of the de degenerates, the communists, the trans people. And it really just comes back to the same reptile brain shit that we saw play out during the 60s and 70s. Um, you know, like I said, anti-war protests were mounting over the war in Vietnam. Richard Nixon won the presidency as a growing number of suburban households associated hippies and LSD and the anti-war movement as something that was bad. And essentially, they needed law and order to be installed again. So Nixon was seen as this pinnacle of conservatism and stability, in a sense. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. I have asked the Congress to provide the legislative authority and the funds to fuel this kind of an offensive. This will be a worldwide offensive dealing with the problems of sources of supply as well as Americans who may be stationed abroad wherever they are in the world. It will be government-wide pulling together 
the nine different fragmented areas where, within the government in which this problem is now being handled. Basically, Nixon's whole thing was deflecting just kind of like Biden. Like it's it's like everyone, dude. You just deflect from all the the real problems and you just scapegoat the fuck out of society to deflect from all the shit that you're doing in Vietnam and elsewhere. So he just basically just associated drugs with the worst aspects of the counterculture that defined the era. He centered his administration on relating drugs and crime to ding, 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 black people. Um, but at the same time, he was going around calling Timothy Leary the most dangerous man in America. So at the time, you know, of course, Timothy Leary's infamous mantra, turn on, tune in, and drop out. I mean, just that mantra in itself is like, okay, tune out the establishment, right? Like, basically a big threat to the status quoism of, like, consumerism and capitalism. So you have tons of hilarious quotes because Richard Nixon filmed himself all the time, like taped himself constantly saying really incriminating shit, which of course came out after the Watergate scandal and he was forced to resign. But some of this stuff is just hilarious. Like, it's just so nuts. I mean, he's basically just saying, um, you know, like we need to blame Leary. I mean, if I, I'm going to try to find this clip, but he's basically saying in one of these tapes, he says, you know what? To salvage your approval ratings, to misdirect attention away from this flagging war in Vietnam, a stagnant economy, we need to find a villain, a guy in a black hat. And why not Timothy Leary? He's a godfather of the countercultural revolution. <laughs> we can make him public enemy number one. Dude, I can't believe he, this is probably from his tape recordings from yes. the White House. Yes. What a fucking crazy thing to say. Hilarious, though. Yeah. So, can you this imagine is, them so, talking in the White House like this now? Like, uh, no, dude, Obama. that's what I was thinking. Can you imagine if Obama or Bush's inner circle like recorded meetings between? Yeah. It's just crazy that that Nixon did this and thought that it was a good idea. What a fucking nut job, dude! And all he cared about was like the hippies. Like he just was like, "We're knee deep in hippies, marijuana, LSD, and other hallucinogens. We are self doped to the point where we're like at the lowest level since the decadence of Rome." So just really babyish stuff. Which is a absurd coming from him because he was probably one of the more doped up presidents on record <laughs> besides George H.W. Bush um, of the last, you know, half century. Uh, he was on, I think he was on um, amphetamine uh, pretty much daily. He was taking barbiturates to go to sleep. So when you're in that cycle, you know, you're almost like halfway to Elvis if you're <laughs> taking like hardcore sleeping pills and you're on amphetamines all day long, every day. So, you know, talk about being um, doped up. Like, I mean, it's just ridiculous to think that yeah, he dude, didn't that... see himself as like basically just, you know, the same thing. But, you know, I guess, you know, it took a long time for people to realize the pharmaceutical companies also make hardcore drugs. You could lie to yourself and say, you know, it's medicine or something. I don't fucking know. I'm not sure what precipitated this. But California and Nevada simultaneously made LSD illegal in 1966. So they actually did before the U.S. government came in two years later and did a federal ban. Interesting. Um, Very interesting. So it must have been something to do with the San Francisco hippie movement that like really pissed off these governors. And they were like, let's just nip this in the bud. Let's uh, criminalize this drug. And then, of course, the U.S. government followed suit two years later. So two years after that, in 1970, Nixon signed the Controlled Substances Act, which, of course, dictated marijuana prohibition and, of course, cemented that notion that weed is this gateway drug to more illicit substances. 
Um, and, you know, the, the rest is really history. I mean, Watergate happens, Nixon resigns. All the, the hippie era came tumbling down. You know, it's fall from grace. We already mentioned several different things which supposedly killed the hippie era in one, you know, striking blow. Um, but it was probably more of a culmination of different things. And the 70s, I don't think, is remembered as an era of psychedelic drugs or an era of, like, psychedelic thinkers. Um, and that's largely due to the fact that, you know, post-Vietnam, a lot of people came back to the United States uh, very fucking addicted to heroin. Um, I've read statistics that say somewhere in the, like, 25 to 30% range of Vietnam veterans came back from the Vietnam War addicted to heroin. That statistic sounds very, very high to me, but apparently this is how bad it was. Um, and of course, the U.S. government was was involved. Um, some army generals were involved in dealing heroin in the Vietnam War in Laos. Uh, there's a whole rabbit hole to go down there with Air America, the plane flights that were used to smuggle heroin back and forth. But, you know, 70s, obviously, the popularization of like pharmaceutical recreational drugs like uppers um downers you hear all these like slang terms about these drugs now like uh you know the only drug we actually know the name of is like quaalude probably because of bill cosby everyone knows what that is now but like there was all these slang terms for all these other kinds of drugs like black beauties uh you know red something i forgot the name of it but they were all different kinds of like like sedatives basic amphetamines i think um some of them were and that you know, those drugs sort of became defined in the 70s. But more in the background, uh, psychedelics were still going very strong, even after they went underground, um, after they were basically all made illegal in the Nixon era. And I think that's most well expressed with a psychedelic author. Well, I don't really call him a psychedelic author is fair. More like scientist, philosopher, um weirdo visionary John Lilly comes into the picture. He'd already been around writing books in the 1960s. He'd already be, made a name for himself as a scientist researching dolphin intelligence. So the idea like we have in society now that the dolphins are really smart and they're like as smart as, you know, certain type of primates, even smarter is something that was popularized and made sort of known by John Lilly. He is responsible for that belief in culture and a belief that, you know, hasn't really been debunked. Like certain mammals like dolphins have a bigger like hippocampus and aspects of their brain that are actually larger than human beings, which is sort of strange that, you know, other animals we can definitively say they have much smaller brains or much smaller frontal lobes that mean that they're level of intelligence or consciousness is, is much lower than a human. Well, some of these mammals like dolphins actually seem to have a larger center of their brain than humans do. He sort of went down to these crazy rabbit holes where he started experimenting with isolation tanks, flotation tanks to try to have, um, you know, altered, altered consciousness states. And he got into this belief that dolphins because they had so much of a, a, a more active part of this, their brain that are like this, that dolphins are always floating and that somehow dolphins are always on this like higher plane of consciousness that, you know, he was only able to achieve within an isolation tank. And he even believed that taking drugs like LSD in the isolation tank would enhance his ability to experience what this was like. 
Hold on, let me let me jump in here really quickly. How how famous and how popular were isolation tanks during this era? Was this like a, a relatively new thing? Apparently, um, he invented it. Now, this what? is something that I was not aware of. And you know, invented what? I mean, like if we're talking yeah, about yeah, yeah. the idea of floating in like I in like in complete darkness, probably people have figured this out thousands of years ago for you know creating altered states in their own minds. But John Lilly, he worked um, in the army. He was a government guy. Um, he had a long career in the army. In the 1950s, he got a job studying neurophysiology with the U.S. Public Health Service. And in 1954, um, he had this idea in his head that he wanted to isolate a brain from external stimulation. But he came up with all these really crazy ideas. And one of those ideas was the isolation tank, which was basically a dark soundproof tank mm. of warm salt water to create the sense of buoyancy. So you're floating on salt water, essentially, but the water temperature itself is the same temperature as the surface of your skin. So when you get into this water, and this is something that he didn't, he didn't develop these details until later on, but what it turned into was to create this sense of complete weightlessness, like as if you're floating, almost to with the goal of disconnecting the brain from external stimulation and that's and that's why he came up with the first isolation tank that's fascinating you know this idea of large-brained mammals um was you know it sort of it, it coalesced with his fascination with and his desire to disconnect the brain from external simulation. Cause in, cause again, in his mind, he believed that these large brained mammals like whales and dolphins were somehow experiencing a, a, an isolation of their brain from external stimulation on, in their own bodies. Mm, okay. I understand now. That's amazing. And I guess to him, this got into some more psychedelic, more new age spiritual beliefs where he believed that, you know, when you're in an isolation tank, when your brain is disconnected from external stimulation, you reach this sort of higher spiritual plane. And that's something that he seemed to believe that these higher brain mammals like whales and dolphins were in 24-7. <laughs> like, that's how they lived. Whoa. Um, yeah, almost like this, these zen-like, hyper-intelligent, you know, psychedelic, almost like god-like creatures that were just there on our planet and just to just to clarify this is not the researcher who tried um who had sex with the dolphin you are this is not who john lily is in case people are wondering that is a different person. i first of all i haven't right? heard that the only dolphin sex thing i ever saw was like a very detailed early internet hoax in like the mid 90s where it's like a fact on how to have sex with wild dolphins no, no, no. I mean, this is no. This is totally something that ha has happened at least once, where a U.S.-funded scientist um, in the '60s. Wow, amazing that this was all in the '60s. Led to an intimate relationship between researcher Margaret Ho Lavat and a dolphin named Peter. Wow. Um, this isn't even the one that I was thinking of. This is another woman. Um, very fascinating. From what I understand, dolphins. Um I mean, I, geez, I'm going to sound like an insane. I don't want to sound like Chank Uger, everybody, but like, <laughs> I'm not pro bestiality. <laughs> I am not, I don't know if John Lilly did it, but he did other crazy things yeah, with yeah, dolphins. Yeah. Like right. he dosed dolphins with acid, had them in a tank next to him in himself in an isolation tank, trying to develop like telepathic communication with dolphins. So, you know, 
arguably unethical stuff. He did do brain experiments on primates. So he was a scientist who delved into indefinitely into some mad scientist territory. Um, but what John Lilly actually, in terms of his contribution to psychedelic thing, like culture and just the use of psychedelic drugs is in the same way that like Terrence McKenna, you know, made it seem like DMT was the, was the right spaceship to take, to go to the, the great, the galaxy you want to go to. John Lilly did that with ketamine very early on. Um, he popularized the idea of ketamine as a, basically a way to like break through to this other side of reality. And in this other side of reality, as early as 1978, just to show you how nutty he was already getting by then, um, he believed in a malevolent entity called solid state intelligence. And this was a computation capable solid state system engineered by humans that will eventually develop into an autonomous bioform. So almost imagine like the technology that we're making, like solid state circuitry, computers, everything will somehow together on its own form a, male a malevolent form of AI type of like sentience and turn against us. Whoa, wait, wait. So he was like warning against AI, like before he even understood. Not even AI specifically, Abby. He believed like it's called solid state oh, intelligence, like, a, like circuitry. Like a straight up like, oh, wow. Like the idea of even just like utilizing electricity in like complicated circuits, like was I, I think enough to make him think that we had somehow tapped into this dark side that was basically, it was, it was basically like a sentient intelligence that was going to control us. Man, that's so interesting that so many of these people kind of devolved into like this kind of magical mm -hmm. thinking. Yeah. That's so interesting. He would have definitely been a Y2Care. Yep. Yeah. And Jesus. I mean, this is, it gets crazier. So he believes that this, this bioform is ideal for surviving in low temperature vacuum environments. So it can survive in space, right? So automatically his thinking is that this must be the carrier mm -hmm. of like these types of intelligences must exist all throughout outer space as well. And that they're somehow like infiltrating like our society somehow. And this is what it gets even crazier. So he also predicted or prophesized and this is all based on like ketamine induced visions, ketamine in an isolation tank specifically. Wait, what, what was the classification of ketamine at this time? Veterinary anesthetic, but also okay. I think that it was, you could still purchase it off the shelf at like any chemistry supply store without like a doc, like a right. pharmaceutical license. Mm -hmm. Even though it was designated as a veterinary anesthetic, it mm -hmm. got scheduled as like a drug that you only could get prescriptions for like much later. Mm -hmm. What's also bizarre is he believed that there was another uh, group of intelligence that was battling with the solid state intelligence called the Earth Coincidence Control Office. <laughs> uh, in 1974, according to Wikipedia, Lilly's research using various psychoactive drugs led him to believe in the existence of a certain hierarchical group of cosmic entities, the lowest of which he later dubbed Earth Coincidence Control Office. And at some point, I know enough about his delusions in this regard that I remember reading that he basically believed that solid state intelligence was already like programming human beings to get rid of all of the Earth Coincidence Control Office intelligence by via whaling and hunting dolphins. So he thought that like somehow that was what was 
driving that that like they needed to kill all of the higher brain mammals right that it was like a larger conspiracy that they yeah. that the government was aware of what he had figured out and that's why this was happening well not even the government that it was like some kind of underlying like inter- force intergalactic yes that it was like a force. force that drove people to do these evil things without them even realizing mm. what it was doing it's almost, I still feel like I don't understand what he's saying. I mean, I almost the more I read about this, it almost sounds like a, a Shane Carruth, like the guy who wrote like Primer and Upstream Color, like movie right. plot. It's right. it's that out far out, but also I could see on some wild level it makes some internal logical sense to him, you know. But it's a crazy. I mean, yeah, it's a completely batshit. I mean, it it really kind of makes you wonder if like, you know, even he had like a mental break at some point like a psychotic break you know absolutely abby and i think you could have a a sort of a mini version of a psychotic break that doesn't completely remove you from being grounded but it can but it can keep you in a state that's never fully you never fully come back Mm -hmm. Um, and i think that Mm -hmm. this is probably what happened to him throughout the 70s and i mean he he was so famous there was there's movies made about him that don't actually use his real name they're based off of him there's a movie mm-hmm. called the day of the dolphin and wikipedia says uh it's about a lily-esque scientist known to the dolphins as pa who succeeds to teaching a dolphin to speak elementary english this is something john lily also theorizes that you could teach dolphins to speak language mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and communicate um that he was portrayed by george c scott in this movie um, of all, I mean, that's a pretty big <laughs> fucking actor. And the 1980 movie, um, who I hope most of Media Roots listeners have seen by this point, Altered States, uh, starring the actor William Hurt, playing a John Lilly S figure, is about a scientist at a university who starts doing psychedelic drugs in an isolation tank and starts regressing evolutionarily. So, like, and you know, a lot of people talk about when they do psychedelics, they become primates and they like go back in time and experience what it's like to like see the dinosaurs die and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Well, in this movie, they make it seem like he's actually like manifesting that stuff physically. So like he almost like turns into like a primate and like escapes the isolation tank. So it's almost like a horror movie, mm-hmm. but it's completely based off of his um, his experiences. So. It's just fascinating that that's how big of an impact he had on culture, but yet no one really, I don't think a lot of people who've seen those movies have any idea that he was this basically mad scientist guy, hyper-intelligent, hyper-creative mad scientist guy um, who had was doing ketamine in an isolation tank, you know, on a very frequent basis and just writing these diatribes about it. I had no idea any of that shit. Totally insane. Around this same time period, like the late 1970s, mid to late 70s, you already had sort of an explosion of psychedelic-inspired film, mostly foreign film, like a Jodorowsky, Holy Mountain, different, mostly European and non-American filmmakers making psychedelic films. You had people like in Andy Warhol's circle here, sort of linked to the Velvet Underground, inspired by psychedelics too. Uh, they were also doing heroin and drugs like that. So there was some of that happening here, but I'd say most of the mo- more interesting psychedelic influence art was probably happening in Europe around the time of the 1970s. You know, there was more, let's, there was a little bit more psychedelic 
um, influence in black music here in the 70s, like we would see with like cyber funk and funk and things like that. But I'd say it was much more apparent in Europe where we got Krautrock, um, bands like Can, Tangerine Dream, uh, Cluster, um, all these like weird bands started coming out. They were very, very clearly psychedelic inspired and making like music that was would normally be considered avant-garde, but was actually trying to reach like young people, younger people. Um, this was exploding in Europe. And then also we have in the very late 70s industrial music, which sort of got spawned out of, and I say industrial music, I mean the earliest iterations of it, like Throbbing Gristle, like Cabaret Voltaire. Throbbing Gristle actually started as a performance art group called Comb Transmissions. They used to play these huge gallery shows at like the ICA in London and things in the late 70s where they would do like extremely shock tactic, like over the top sexual violent performances in the middle of like a crowded gallery, like cutting each other up, shitting on each other, pissing on each other, burning candles on their assholes. I mean, the craziest shit you can think of, uh, Comb Transmissions, the original iteration of Throbbing Gristle was Genesis Peorage and Cozy Fanny Tootie basically doing these like crazy violent sexual performances in the middle of these hoity-toity art galleries. And this was already in, a, in the realm of performance art becoming this sort of like avant-garde thing. Avant-garde culture in general was psychedelic inspired. I mean, even someone like Stockhausen, for example, um, an avant-garde 20th century composer was openly discussing how different psychedelic drugs inspired his music. So it was no longer just like the hippie music, um, you know, like psych rock and folk uh, rock and these kind of hippie genres that were psychedelic inspired. It was almost like anything that seemed like it was fringy and avant-garde also had a blend of psychedelic inspiration. I would say a more interesting version of it than what happened in the 1960s. You know, it didn't have that cringy hippie vibe. It had more of like a, like, let's just push the boundaries kind of a vibe. You know, Genesis Peorage from Thurman Gristle, I think, talked about MDMA, uh, like, in the late 70s. So they were also, like, drop, you know, name-dropping super, super obscure drugs, um, too, that would later become popular in rave culture. This was a very crazy time in terms of performance art becoming a very... Um, it, it Basically, like, a lot of people were trying to push the envelope. How offensive could you be? How shocking could you be? It was almost like kind of an elite thing because it was like at the, you know, wasn't really open to the public in, in a lot of arenas, too. So it was just like very strange. Becoming very avant-garde with this kind of artistic expression, this was like, you know, Dadaism was also like a part of, you know, the rejection of like established norm in the art world and kind of a rejection of everything that we knew about what what is art what can art be so all of this was emerging out of out of everything that you just set up for us um people that we know that are famous that were you know coming out of this time as performance artists as well andy warhol actually was doing performance art at the beginning of his career yoko ono um was a famous performance artist she did a, a piece called the cut where yoko ono sat there and had a scissors in front of her in an art gallery and people could come and cut articles of her clothing off. Maria oh, wow. Abramovic. Wait, can I, yeah. just, can I just mention yeah. something about it? I, I, a teacher when I was going to um, audio engineering school told the story. I was in session on a Yoko Ono recording sometime in the early 80s and 
she spent about 20 minutes, um, 20 to 30 minutes of this, their studio time. She wanted to record the sound of a dead rat in a shoebox. <laughs> and it was, it was just obviously silent. It didn't make sound, but she, it was very important for her to put that in the album. <laughs> like, to, I mean, I, to record people, that. <laughs> people like make fun of her, but I actually do like her and I, no, I, and do I too. liked how weird she is. And I totally, I and awesome. now I get the whole, like, we're in bed kind of thing like all of it was performance art you know and like you can make fun of what her and John Lennon were doing but I think it was fucking cool and all of it makes sense to me especially when you really dig into this era and how it actually she was doing a lot of groundbreaking stuff have you seen the picture though of John Lennon's ass crack no send it to me I'd love to I'd love to it's a crazy I don't know if it's fake but like John Lennon's naked bare end looks very bizarre and the only picture they they took of each other during that I mean I've seen yeah of course I've seen that famous photo (laughs) of them but yeah I mean Maria Abramovic if people are not aware of this name then you don't then you're not a pizza gator baby because she (laughs) is she is the pioneer of spirit cooking like all of this, you have to understand the time. You have to understand how all of this, how all of this originated, and also who these people are. Especially her, who calls herself like the grandmother of performance art, because she was doing this shit decades ago. One of her most famous pieces, I forget the name of it, but like it was taking Yoko Ono's idea and and pretty and, and really upping the ante. I mean, she would she put like all these objects on a table, a lot of them benign, and then a lot of weapons. And the art piece was her standing in an art gallery for six hours while she would like tell the patrons or the bystanders, like, you could do whatever you want to me and I am accountable for what you do to me. And I'm just a puppet. And so the whole art performance was basically showing that, it, you know, if people think that there will be no accountability for their actions, they will do really fucked up shit. And so over the course of the night, someone cut her neck open and started drinking her blood with like a small knife, like just did some really crazy stuff. And at the end of the night, after people were like drinking and shit, like someone actually loaded the gun that she kept on the table and like put it on, put it up to her temple. And like, that's when like all, like apparently the crowd ended up fighting with each other and the gallery owner had to shut down the exhibit. Um, But I mean, it really says it all, you know, and it just, it's shit like this that people were doing that was so interesting. So of course she goes on, you know, fast forward to (laughs) the Hillary Clinton era and she's actually friends with people like John Podesta doing these like high-end dinner parties that are supposed to be seen as like the subversive click of like this famous performance artist. And Jay-Z doing videos with Jay-Z, doing uh, eating cakes with Lady Gaga, Pamela Anderson. Yeah, Yeah, she's fully... In that, she's she's in it, dude. Yeah, no, she's full normie. I mean, the spirit cooking thing was like really a a, a quote unquote cookbook of aphrodisiac recipes that she started in 1996. And they were basically just like, it's like fucking stupid shit. Like, oh, one gram of jealousy, like that you put a fresh breast milk with a fresh sperm and, you know, like that kind of shit. And so these idiots. Um, thought that it was like real, that this was really like satanic works being done to generate the demon eating pedophilic elites. And so it was, it's just really fascinating to see like who this woman really is and how it's kind of a lot more banal than we think it is. It's just like men, it's painted as like this very edgy thing among basically elite crowds. Um, and she does these dinners still, you know. It was done in the gallery, you know, yeah. circuit, which is much more of like an academic high class exactly. world. Exactly. Simultaneously, there was more of like a punk ethos happening, you know, among like in the, like the industrial world mm-hmm. with some of these crazier, more gritty performance artists. And I don't know if that's no, you're right. There's a totally different. There's a 
very stark dichotomy where it's just like gritty. You know, like, or something would take place in like a warehouse. Exactly. The th- throbbing gr- well, you said Throbbing Gristle was doing stuff in gallery spaces too, which I find interesting. They were both doing both. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, there was definitely like a more subculture manifesting in like the, the underground art scene that was definitely more gritty. I'll just name two other guys before I get into Alex Gray that I think is really interesting and just shows you how bizarre this type of stuff really got. This guy, Vito Aconsi. This just shows you, like, you could really question, like, this isn't art. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, this guy, in his Wikipedia, it says that he crossed boundaries such as public, private, consensual, non-consensual. It's like, okay, 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 you're already getting into, like... (laughs) Like sketchy like territory. It's like it's like all right. What are we what are we gonna get into here? And like here's his yeah. famous art pieces. Ready? That he followed random people on this New York City streets. <laughs> that was one of the art pieces of following and like stalking people in New York City. And here's another one called the Seed Bed in 1972, where he masturbated continuously under a temporary floor at an art gallery as visitors walked above him and heard him. <laughs> like, that's not art, dude. You're just fucking, like, a creepy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Realistically, how long could you jack off for during, like, a whole argument? Yeah, it's just I mean, totally insane stuff. Was he able, was he, like, just constantly being I mean, it was off, probably like, just, like, yeah, I'm sure that he was probably just making the noises or something. It's just, yeah. like, what the I fuck? I mean, maybe he edged or something, because I mean, that's, I don't see how you would keep it up for that long. <laughs> I mean, it kind of, yeah, and then one other guy, Chris Burden, um, and this is a guy that I've heard about before who became famous for the performance art um, display called Shoot in 1971, where he had himself be shot in the arm. And then he he (laughs) trapped himself in a locker for five days called the Five Day Locker Piece. So you have similar artists doing really shocking stuff today. There's a Russian performance artist who, like, um, I think, like, nailed his balls to the red square, sewed his mouth shut in response to, like, Pussy Riot being criminalized, like, doing other really, like, really daring shit. And, like, yeah, he's had mental health. It's, like, health. sponsored by the U.S. government. Though. It's, like, <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's, like, U.S. government has, like, taken, like, 70s performance art and been, like, we should try, we should just, like, <laughs> Well, they that. did sponsor fucking uh, Pollock. Um, Pollock? Yeah. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, too, like, around this time, like, we also had, um... Authors like J.G. Ballard and like Philip K. Dick were heavily uh, psychedelic drug inspired, especially Philip K. Dick. But J.G. Ballard's like novel Crash came out in 1973, which is basically about a subculture of people who are sexually aroused by car crashes. So like it's almost like the, the people are writing books about like fake subcultures of like very extreme fringe behavior of like insanity. You know, what, meanwhile, while like actual people were doing like extreme performance Mm -hmm, art mm -hmm. yeah i mean i know there's a lot of different types of art but it just kind of reminds me of like today you have you know one of the biggest problems of the art world other than like the elitism and like this reinforcement of like you could have really shitty art but as long as you know the right people and you're kind of like welcomed into the society there's a lot of like the abstractionist and like weird symbolic nature where a lot of young creatives and artists who are really promising are ushered into like, you know, under the tutelage of like a specific person at a university and they'll be like urged to just do when you walk into an art exhibit, it's just like a totally theoretical concept where it'll just be like broken glass on the ground. And it's like all of this shit exists for like a very weird, small academic world. And it like really at the end of the day, it's like, it's just a very academic, abstract thing that I feel like doesn't really like move the needle. Um, and it kind of is, it's like, 
it, it's like that's where the grants are. You like have to go into these spaces and it just becomes very boring and uninspiring. Um, but this is. Well, you don't have to tell yeah. me that. I mean, I fucking lived through. <laughs> I mean, I've, I have the other facing the other side of like avant garde music. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm sure it's when the you same get into the gallery thing. space when it comes to like avant garde, you know, music or sound stuff. Some of the stuff I've seen in galleries that's like sound based is just like, this is awful. Like, they, it, you literally realize some of these curators are just only in positions of authority, like random chance, ladder climbing. Yep. They have really no taste, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's part of the problem. Exactly. You know, they're just idiots. And so, yeah, no, totally. It's the same with me living in New York and walking around the Chelsea Art Galleries. And, like, I would say 90% of everything that I saw was just absolute trash and just made no sense. And it was just like, this is this is just random chance and or, like, fake. Um, you know, Alex Gray came out of this time. So Alex Gray, for the longest time, has been one of my favorite artists. I'm extremely inspired by his psychedelic art. I do psychedelic art. Alex Gray and Allison Gray have come on Breaking the Set. Alex Gray has even told me himself that, like, he finds my art very promising and that it's, like, very cool, you know, and it's, like, inspiring oh, that's, that's nice. to him. <laughs> so, wow. yeah, so I've, I've, uh, I've been very lucky to, like, receive those words from one of the most brilliant psychedelic artists, you know, someone who can really encapsulate and express the psychedelic experience into art that I I don't think that I could really pinpoint anyone else, especially alive right now that that can really encapsulate like the spiritual nature of psychedelics and and really paint that. And I've heard him talk at length about how like he's had it, he's he's all of his paintings are like mirrors of trips that he's had. For me, I can't have a psychedelic experience and then paint that experience. You know, it's just the feelings and the ideas that you're left with that then you could try to relay in some sort of imagery. But like for him, it seemed like he did have kind of a memory based experience where he could actually relay specific hallucinations that he had and actually paint them to a T, which is fascinating. So anyway, I had no idea that Alex Gray started off in this in this performance art world that we're talking about it kind of makes sense um based on his age and of course knowing that you know his his journey but um i did not know until i did research for this episode that that he started off in kind of a more dark setting where he was doing very off the wall shit as a performance artist with his wife um back in the day so sometimes putting his own life in danger and the audience members lives you know could possibly be a risk and and that was sometimes even stated in the program for the performance. Like the, only, the first one I heard about was that he did some like wheel of time thing where he put his feet laying down on like a, a, a slab of metal that was a cha- welded to a wheel that was meant to like spin him around like the arm of a clock. And it was powered by just like a gas motor that was like unknown. Like it, it was just going to keep accelerating him like with no ability to stop it. And he and he wanted people in the program to feel like it was dangerous enough where the thing could fly off and, and potentially hurt them in the audience. This is like how Alex Gray was in the 70s versus now. There's a, there's a, yeah, there is a whole different um, aesthetic and purpose behind behind the art he was Well, doing. there seems to be much more of an intention with his art today, whereas back in the day that you're talking about, he was in his early 20s. He was, a v- he was very nihilistic. He was actually near suicide. In fact, he changed his name from Alex Velzi to Alex Gray 
as sort of a gesture to like to basically articulate this this dark that he was battling within him. So it was like this gray was supposed to be like the gray matter, like we can harmonize the light and dark. He even shaved his head um, halfway. And so he had like really, really long hair and then like a shaved half head. Psychedelics must have been so normalized at the time that Alex Gray was growing up as a kid that when he was 12 or 13, he actually did his science project on LSD. Wait, wow. I know for sure that he was doing a lot of psychedelics, Mm -hmm. uh, heavy amounts of them by the late 70s because he invented a physical product, which I think is actually one of the most interesting and basic you know, simplistic, but very, very useful physical products ever marketed within the psychedelic marketplace. And it is called the Mindfold. Mm. It's a it's a mask that looks like any other sleeping mask. It looks, you know, it's very simple design. All it is is a sleeping mask-like thing you put on your face that's plastic. And it has in it foam padding that lets you open your eyes fully in complete darkness. So the so the concept of it is you don't have anything leaning up against your eyes or putting pressure on your eyes like a normal sleep mask. It's to have what most people call closed eye visuals, but you're able to have them with your eyes open. Now, just the mere fact that your brain, you know, when you open your eyes and you're looking into dark space, your brain knows it. It's, it can create a different, you know, sort of perceptual um, frame. But at a certain point, it almost creates this feeling where you can't distinguish anymore that your eyes are actually open. And you, and your closed eye visuals, your internal sort of imagination starts to ble- bleed over. And this is something that I learned very early on doing psychedelics is you could buy a mindfold and actually get like a lot more bang for your buck on a psychedelic drug. Like if you weren't tripping hard enough, you could throw in the mindfold and your trip would get like two times stronger. It was, it was very useful, and he started making these in the late 70s. I don't know when he started marketing them, but like something super, super simple, I just think shows that he was very, very clever and ingenious that you know, he would even come up with something like this. I don't know who came up with this idea before, mm-hmm. a sleeping mask where you could basically open your eyes in complete pitch black darkness. Um, and I don't think people really realize how powerful that is until you try it or Try to just meditate with uh, a mindfold. I r- highly recommend it. But try to track down an original mindfold, not the cheap knockoffs they sell on Amazon now. Interesting. Yeah, so um, he he was definitely just a very different kind of dude. You know, another, another byproduct of the 60s and 70s. And um, after dropping out of one art school and settling in Boston to finish, he got a job intentionally at Harvard to work in a morgue to prepare cadavers for dissection. This was not simply to get a job as a working artist. This was specifically to study dead bodies and anatomy and do performance art with the corpses. As a huge fan of Alex Gray, you know, it, it's been really hard for me to grapple with the side of him and with how unethical and immoral it was to use cadavers that did not give prior consent. There's a huge boundary that you're crossing right, of, of consent, of morals, of, of what you can do, like, legally, like, to do this shit. It's like, yes, I get the shock value of it, and, and you know, that that is only excused to a certain extent of what I'm about to get into, but, like, yeah, I mean, using cadavers and dead bodies for performance art, I do not think is okay, and I don't care what 
time we're talking about, what time in history that this was considered normalized in the era of like shocking performance art. So um, it gets really dark, though. It gets really dark. But it, but at least understanding now what people were doing at the time, it's not as shocking to me to hear what Alex did originally. So from an interview with Inquiring Minds, um, the interviewer asks, what originally propelled you to work in a morgue? Or was that more happenstance? Alex Gray. No, it was deliberate. I was interested in confronting the reality of our mortality, which seems to be shut away in our culture. We all die, but we rarely see a dead person, except on film, when there's an aesthetic distance, and the smell and feel of a corpse is not palpable. He talks about doing art pieces with cadavers in his book Mission of Art. Quote, I did a variety of performances using cadavers that center around the use or misuse of bodies at the medical school morgue where I worked. At the time, I felt like I was courageously exploring the realm of the ultimate polarity, that, that of life and death. Now it seems like I was also uncovering my own lack of values and understanding of good and evil. If I did think about it, I justified my art as a reflection of a diseased society. Um, and he talks about this in his book. In one piece called Inner Ear, he cut off the head of a dead woman, then poured hot lead into her ear as a way to make a model. It was a violent way to make contact with her spirit so she would speak to my inner ear. And then he claims her spirit angrily confronted him later. In another piece entitled Life, Death, and God, he tied a rope around his ankle, then tied the other end of a rope around the cadaver, and they both hung suspended on a wall, strung on either side of a drawing of a crucifix. And that's and you can see photos of both, of um, at least the second one, where I've seen him Jesus hanging Christ. on a wall next to a dead person. And here's here's where it gets How really... How decomposed does it look? Like, what does the person look it like? It doesn't look... Curious. I mean, it's a really grainy black and white photo, so I can't tell. I'm sure there are more high-res photos that are available. Um, at the time, he was also doing kind of similar stuff to Throbbing Gristle. He was covering himself in feces. Um, him and Allison Gray, who had met at a party, they did LSD together for the first time, actually. So he was, so actually I do know the answer to that. He did LSD with Allison for the first time at a party at her house when he was already an adult. So, but it's interesting because it was so normalized to him earlier as a teenager that he was even like doing research papers on it. So, yeah. Um, so anyway, at the time he was doing really wild stuff. Him and Allison also had public sex. I'm not sure if there was orgies, but I know that they fucked in like a glass box, like in, in a couple of these settings as well with the crowd. Um, there was Crazy. another public um, art piece, and they were doing a lot of this stuff together. So it's interesting that they've been together this whole time, and they've also evolved to the people that they are now when they started off doing this kind of stuff. So him and Allison also sat at a table. Um, I forget what the piece was called, but it was one of the cooler ones that he did where they were like, they looked like a, like a nuclear bomb kept going off, oh, yeah. and they were like spitting out, like vomiting money. Yeah, they were like totally, they looked like really good, like zombie yeah, yeah, yeah. makeup, like Walking Dead quality shit. Yeah. I don't know who, if, if he was a makeup artist, but I don't know who did that. But yeah, I, I was impressed just seeing photos of that a long time ago. Yeah. And then he also like would take a brain from the morgue and like vomit on it and stuff. So it was like different kind of abusive things to parts of bodies, you know, even if it wasn't a full person's body, he was doing stuff like that. I guess one thing that I learned from this that I was intrigued by but maybe a little unsettled by is that 
he is such an amazing painter when it comes to like the human anatomy now in terms of like the way he portrays psychedelic experiences like these energy rays coming through people's you know muscle musculature system and you could see all the organs inside some of his drawings almost look like these really detailed like psychedelic anatomy drawings and apparently he learns how to do this partly by like fucking around with dead bodies or like he I mean, I don't know how much actual official work he did in this morgue where his job was... I mean, he did dissection, so I'm sure just that alone gave him an insight into the way the human body looked. Oh, absolutely. Apparently, he also did anatomy drawings for some science books before even transitioning to Well, yeah, so he worked He worked at the morgue for five years, and then he worked as a medical illustrator based on, like, you know, studying the human cadaver, essentially. He worked as a medical illustrator for 10 years, and taught anatomy and figure sculpting at New York University. So all of this work on anatomy and the human body, as well as his opening up to psychedelics and LSD, manifested into this iconic Sacred Mirrors series, which I'm sure many people have seen today. It's those 21 massive life-size paintings of the different stages of the human body, like opening more and more to the spirit and the rays of of energy that you're talking about. Um, And... It's really just physical self-morphing into strands of, like, pure energy. And this is where he had a mid-career retrospective of his life. This is when the Sacred Mirror series were featured at a museum in San Diego, and that's where Maynard from Tool found out about his work. And so the rest is history from that point forward. But I guess I was curious that he actually really became famous later on in life, you know? I mean, he was he was pretty old, And, like, the Sacred Mirror series was really the first big generation of, like, this psychedelic art that was in a set. Um, Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I mean, and and sadly, he wasn't really respected or embraced in, like, the modern art scene at all. And he wasn't really seen as, like, a, you know, as one of them. And so that's why he kind of turned more to the psychedelic community and just started being revered more and more as, like, you know, this true artist at least to millions of people who really appreciated psychedelics I think he's a much better painter than almost any other painter that I've seen in some of these galleries and stuff so it just shows you it's just so fucking arbitrary all of it well yeah it just shows you how isolated these different little scenes Mm -hmm. are from each other I mean it's like how McKenna was revered and worshipped within the psychedelic community but treated you know kind of like a mockery with from outside of it um alex gray his paintings are so meaningful and so impactful for people in the psychedelic community that they've basically defined uh i think like a modern psychedelic aesthetic in the same way that certain types of art or imagery defined it in the 1960s i mean who else really has defined it like he has um I don't. I can't really think of hardly anything else right i mean and the atomization like the compartmentalized um portions of his artwork that you can just keep going folding in more and more and more and it's kind of like you know in the 60s we had like this bubbly um the flower child you know the can you pass the acid test like very like iconic psychedelic imagery that is just very like loopy and groovy looking but then this was this was much more honed in on like the digital <laughs> the digital nature of like something like DMT you know mm-hmm. like something that you can really look at and you're like holy fuck I have never seen any anyone be able to do this it's funny because I almost see him I, I see him almost like the Alex Ross I don't know if you're familiar mm-hmm. with Alex Ross in comics who 
he's probably the be- one of the best painters I've ever seen in my life. Like he's almost like Norman Rockwell level painter of these realistic human forms and he paints the like the most realistic versions of like superheroes you'll ever see but people outside the world of like comic books you know you would never see his paintings in like a mainstream gallery because it's it's almost considered low art right and i think that that's how people they're probably people in the art world that's how they see alex gray they see it as like this low art it's catering to a specific audience but you cannot underestimate the impact on the influence that it's had because yeah, like Tool using an Alex Gray painting in an album cover um, that maybe doesn't seem like that big of a deal to people, but it like, you know, maybe they had seen it at that thing, but they probably were already plugged in a bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, that album has a psychedelic theme to it. Well, yeah, too, and Tool, well, I mean, right? I, I would hate to compare Tool to the Grateful Dead. Um, I think Tool's probably a lot more talented, but um, but it does kind of bring the same, like, psychedelic energy at some of these Tool concerts where there is a yeah. massive psychedelic community that that trips out and goes to see tool concerts and there and it's it, it is just kind of interesting it's like i don't personally get it but i mean i i respect it and i think it's really cool um and it and it does make sense why alex gray's artwork has been integrated in a lot of the tool stuff i mean i was just gonna say it's funny that i probably alex gray defined so much of that psychedelic imagery and then the era I feel like the only new thing I've seen that's that seems like it's as promising is just like AI, like deep dream art. <laughs> like like that seems like in a few years it is going to be like a new form of like psychedelic expression, um, which is kind of bizarre to think that it's like no human, you know, human like Alex Gray has just painted something that's that sort of imagination provoking. Right. Um, but like. Yeah, it is strange that AI art is becoming representative of like more psychedelia. I mean, they called it like they called it deep dreaming, you know, when they would, the, the concept was first invented because it's like the computer visualizing um, imagery. This is where we're going to conclude episode one of the Media Roots Radio mini series on psychedelic drugs. But I just wanted to say at the end here that. If you're interested in AI-created art or generated art, you might want to go check out video demonstrations or examples made from a program that's in the beta testing phase right now called DALL-E2, spelled D-A-L-L-E, the number two. I won't spoil anything about it, but it's absolutely mind-blowing and, in my opinion, very psychedelic. One of the images actually used in this series was completely AI-generated. Can you guess which one? In the next episode of our mini-series on psychedelics, we go into how the 1990s rave scene was an engine for psychedelic drugs. It wasn't originally all about ecstasy, but was about a plethora of psychedelic drugs. And how the rave scene also brought out activists and safety advocates who were trying to reduce harm caused by overdoses by performing pill testing services, people like Emmanuel Spherios from Dance Safe. And if you'd like to check out this entire series, most of it will be unlocked for everybody, but part four of this series for now will be locked for our subscribers only. If you'd like to listen to part four, please go to patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio. Thanks. <laughs>